Welcome to the Knowledge Boxing Podcast with me, Addy White, and with me today, we have, uh, to be honest, it's more of a star-studded pod than usual. Illustrious. In, in, in the sense we have at least one star studded onto the podcast. A future, <laughs> future legend. No, 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 no. Don't let him laugh too loud. We've got to introduce him properly first, so let's introduce him, right? Um, just made his debut on the Billy Joe Saunders Winnie Monroe undercard. Spectacular performance, spectacular outfit. The man for months and months and months, I've said, will revolutionise how boxers operate in this country. A very smart man and a very good boxer, ladies and gentlemen. We finally have Umar Sadiq on the podcast. Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I knew you were talking about me, I was still thinking, oh, please tell me that's me talking about. (laughs) That (laughs) That was a good intro, Terry, man. Thank you. Um, Yeah, hi, Umar Sadiq here, the top boxer. Um, Just made my debut last week, literally a week now, and I'm already on um, massive talk shows, you know, the best podcast going on right now. And um, this boxing life is just great, man. One fight and I'm already on here. Well, you know, we would have got you on before, man. You were making a lot of noise prior to the debut, but we wanted to get that out of the way. How does it feel a week in? Um, I'm actually hungrier than I was before. It was a bit weird. So um, I've I've gotten in there and I've got a taste of um, what being a professional ring is like. And the truth is, it's actually no different to any other fight I've had. It's yeah. just a ring and having a fight with another guy. So um, maybe that perception will change as I go up the levels. But for now, it's just another fight. And I'm just keen on getting a date for my next one. We're definitely going to touch on that later. But I think Andy's looking at me like we need to delve into the action (laughs) that he's finally watched for the first time. Yeah, actually, I I did some homework this week, which uh, knowing Martin for such the length of time that I have, he will tell you that that is a rarity. Um, No no phone calls on Friday, then. I did actually do do some... uh, some homework this week. And yeah. Don't make a habit of that, Andy, because we still need um, a casual on the podcast. <laughs> you know what? I can't believe this. I got called out for being not casual enough twice on Twitter this week. <laughs> like, I was like, well, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, do, I'm supposed to be doing this podcast, so I do some research. People are like, well, easy, Tiger. Um, Isn't it? Yeah, because like, I, I enjoy actually hearing you ask some questions sometimes and just wondering how on earth did the agreement come about where he was allowed to come on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Look, literally, the only reason I have a seat at this table is because I do all of the uh, editing and like produce Technical. it all together. That's literally the only reason I'm here. I can't tell you it's for any other reason. It's certainly not for boxing knowledge, mate, honestly. But no, it's, it's a good dynamic to it. So, um, yeah, well done. Furthermore, let's go then, therefore, on to Parker Fury. Um Terry, um, an unexpected result, or not really? Um, look, look, we 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 say this all the time about boxing. You know, when you're offered a world title shot, if nothing else, show that it means something to you. I don't think Huey Fury did that to the extent that he should have done. 
I know there's been a lot of talk on Twitter that this fight had echoes of Klitschko against Tyson Fury. But I don't think it did, because if you look at the narrative all the way up, Tyson Fury had told us for years that he was looking to embarrass Vladimir Klitschko, that he was looking to really humiliate him and show he was the best heavyweight. And when he went to Germany in front of, I think it's 50,000, that's exactly what he did. He went there and he had Klitschko scared to throw punches because Vladimir couldn't figure him out. That didn't work this time with Huey Fury, if you notice. So what Parker was able to do was say, well, all you've really got is a left-hand attack. So why should I fear that? You know, let's not forget Parker's of, I think he's of Samoan stock. So he, he, he's a tough man. Yeah. He's, a, he's a fighting man. You know, younger listeners will forget guys like David Tua, but these are tough men who will have a fight. Forget skill for a second. He was going to have that fight. And if Huey Fury does call himself a fighting man, which the Furies pride themselves on, he didn't show that in this fight. And he didn't do enough, in my eyes, to to take that belt off him. And as a consequence, I'm not mad at the result. The scoring was a bit suspect. But as I said on Twitter, I suspect it was due to the backlash against Canelo Golovkin. So no judge wanted to be that person that was so out of step that it almost swung the other way, which isn't ideal. Yeah, I, I was a bit surprised with the with the like. So anyway, cards on the table. I I did my uh, casual scoring, and uh, uh, I interacted with a few of our listeners on uh, on Twitter and sort of talked about what how I saw the fight going. Now I'll be honest. When you mention Fury Klitschko, what I I almost felt like was Fury approached this fight. As though, almost as though he was trying to replicate that performance. Uh, the difference being was that Parker doesn't. Fu- I think actually the biggest difference was the fact that Fury doesn't have the technical skill of of um, Tyson. That's what. That's what for me. He didn't throw anywhere near enough punches. I thought at the beginning he was landing and he was making Parker work. But credit to Parker, I. He looked out of ideas by about round five to me, but he kept on it and he kept like a like a tenacious pit bull. He kept charging forward and, well, he got his rewards in the end, I thought. But I want to turn this on Uma because one of the things I take away from that fight is not many fighters use a double-sided attack in boxing. So, for example, if I'm Huey Fury, just going from a right uppercut to a straight right on someone like Parker or from a right uppercut to a right hook on someone like Parker who's very... He's very bread and butter. There's no, there's, there's, there's no sparkles on. There's no sprinkles. He's what I would, I, I imagine Martin would call agricultural. Yeah, and against those guys, you can do what you want. So just, you, I mean, you're in the gym every day, Uma. How often do these things get discussed? Um, it, it's a bit of an odd one because it, I'd say, without giving away too much, we do discuss um, being different, being dynamic. Um, things that we're impressed with when we watch other fighters do things, and um, similarly, when we're not impressed, impressed, we discuss how you know a fighter could change what they've done. Now, admittedly, I haven't watched the fight, but um, from what you're saying, I can I've seen highlights as well. Um, but from what you're saying, it sounds like Fury just needed to use a few angles and like um, like you just alluded to, um, maybe you know change the original. Um, where the punches are coming from, basically. Yeah, just switch the point of attack. Yeah, 
So, um, yeah, I mean, we do discuss all of that. We discuss um, how to not be readable, essentially. Because if we just touch on the Furies for a second, there's this massive myth that they're these super slicksters, always awkward, find these unusual angles, you know, throwing punches upside down and all sorts of stuff. But actually what we realized is, and I call it outcome bias. We look at Tyson Fury and what he did against Klitschko. We say Peter Fury's an amazing trainer. But actually, we need to start saying Tyson Fury's an amazing boxer because uh -huh. Huey doesn't get... He's not at that level. No. And then once you realize he's not at that level, I don't think Peter Fury has an, another plan that would work other than to go be really awkward and try and nick rounds. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I, like I say, it felt like Hugh was doing a Tyson impression, but he didn't have that. I mean, you look, just you've cast your minds back, uh, albeit it's quite a while ago now. What is it, two years? Nearly. Since, since um, Tyson fought Klitschko. At one point, he had both hands behind his back. <laughs> <laughs> they got into yeah, a clinch but, and Titans. But saying that though, Andy, I mean, McGregor did that against Mayweather, but that didn't have anything to do with McGregor's level against Mayweather. So what? So that was, but, but was it the same sort of? Okay, well, I do because it just strikes me as as it's clearly that was showboating. That's what you're saying there, uh, right? Yeah. And what it's designed yeah. to do is to to say to Vladimir, I know you're struggling, so I'm going to humiliate you, let you know that you know I'm going to show the fans I can do this. No one's done this to you. I get. I guess it's like in conjunction with the performance on reflection, but I suppose if you're right, if if, if McGregor does it against Mayweather, then he, yeah. you don't clearly don't have to be dominating a fight to do it. Yeah, and, and McGregor was the other you side just, of the ring when he did it. Basically, yeah, he just needs to be out of range. I, but I also remember Tyson being in a clinch with Klitschko, and he taps him on the back like, "Come on, let's get going. I want to continue boxing." And you think he just. I, I yeah. felt like uh, when I watched that fight, I felt like Tyson was was if it looked fresh and in control all the way up to about round eleven, and that's when I felt Klitschko really let his hands go, and Fury had to keep thinking, and he was tired. Maybe he got a bit ropey those last two rounds. That's how I saw it anyway. And uh, yeah. watching watching Huey last night, actually, if anything, he actually fell apart a lot earlier and a lot more exaggeratedly so he blew it and i said on twitter it's a sign of arrogance that he's going to walk into a world title fight um with with no real tune-up now there might be all kinds of reasons behind the scenes why he couldn't have a proper tune-up that copper box fight he had was an exhibition but the oh, i was just gonna correct you on that <laughs> okay. oh the, on the copper box when you said a copper box fight, I was going to say, no, it's an exhibition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, the guy went into that fight cold. He he wasn't battle-hardened, and you could see that, the, you know, I think the Fury brand is on the way down. I don't know how they come back because, you know, outside the ring is a mess. Inside the ring seems to have stagnated over the last two years. Doesn't it all depend on what happens with Tyson and his drug ruling and whether he comes back into the ring or not? Um. Well, so the updates on that is... UK anti-doping have issued a statement saying the holdup is not their fault. There's actually a tribunal called the NADP tribunal, and apparently the Fury team have applied to have certain items of evidence discounted in the case, and the NADP need to meet in order to resolve that. You can go on the NADP website; all the stuff is on there. It tells you who's failed tests and whatnot. You know, God, there are a lot of rugby players that failed doping tests. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> 
you know, and I'm, I'm surprised these boxers get away with it, but then boxing doesn't take doping seriously, which is something I discuss every week, so we won't do that. Nah, before. mate, you've remained quiet on that issue for quite a long time, actually. <laughs> okay, Rose, right, so uh, Umar, ha- I, I re- you, we spoke before and you, you said you, you hadn't caught up with the fight yet, but I what I wanted to ask you was, before, how did you see it going? What were the chances you gave Fury before the fight? I actually thought Fury was going to win, to be honest. Um, but, and uh, again, from watching the highlights, it looks like he just boxed the wrong game plan. Um, because Joseph Park is not the hardest of fighters, or he doesn't box in the hardest of styles to um, come up with a game plan for when you're a dynamic fighter like um, Huey Fury is. Um, yeah, he hasn't boxed for a long time, but we've been made to believe that he's been in the gym for a long time, so that shouldn't have made a difference. Um, but yeah, I just think it's a matter of wrong game plan, really. But um, yeah, I gave Huey Fury a good chance of winning. I actually thought he was going to win it comfortably. I, see, I have a question here. What do you do against Parker? Because I was watching it. I thought I thought Fury did really well the first couple of rounds. I thought, okay, he's keeping him at arm's distance. He's throwing a few jabs in. He's scoring points. I mean, hardly either of them were... You know, Hugh was staying at distance and Parker wasn't landing anything and and Hugh wasn't throwing a lot, so he wasn't landing anything either. He was occasionally landing a jab, uh, but then saying that, Parker was occasionally landing when he was running in like a loser. You know what? When you first started saying what you were saying, you basically summed it up. When you said Fury was keeping it long, picking him off of the jab, that, and that would be it. Frustrate him, keep... Um, pick him up for the jab, do the basics well at the beginning to see exactly what his game plan is, what he's coming to the fight with. But in the process, you, what you're doing is you're finding your range, you're finding out what works with this guy and what doesn't. You're frustrating him. And as soon as he starts to show signs of um, tiredness or frustration, you then start to bring in the bombs and um, right. do all the flashy bits. Um, but again, from the highlights, you know, Huey Fury's um, body language looks negative. It looks like, again, it was... Um, it was Tyson Fury-esque in terms of the way he was moving but maybe especially like what Terry was saying at the start you've got a world title shot show a bit more oomph for it um, go out there and own it don't leave it in the hands of the judges when you can clearly do more to yeah. make it more decisive Is that a couple of our listeners um, I'm trying to find Mark Evans and Danny Watley both of them we, t- we were talking um, whilst the fight was going on they were Danny Watley in particular said, "What has Huey done to win this?" Nothing. That that was the biggest that was the biggest downside. He said he hasn't done anything to win it. And I thought, I see, I didn't I didn't necessarily see it like that, but I I could understand. And that was what sparked the idea off in my mind. Is this going? To, if you depending on how you, what you prefer as a judge, you could easily yeah. see that Parker has tried to fight this, and Huey has just tried to has basically run away because. What you were saying, Umar, was Huey didn't change. If he'd have done three rounds of that keeping him at distance kind of kind of fighting and then and then started bringing out the bombs, as you suggest, then it would have, it would the fight would have seemed to progress. But yeah. it didn't seem that way. Nothing seemed it to was happen. the same thing from the start to the end. So for me, there were two elements in that fight. Number one, Fury was not listening to his corner. I don't know how many times Peter Fury said, throw that right hand more. Oh, right. Okay. Right. That makes more sense then. So that's really alarming that he's not listening. The second thing is fights have a psychology all of their own. And it's independent of what each person brings to the party. There comes a point where if you're Huey Fury, you're saying, I've got this easy into round four. 
at that point there, you say, do you know what? I'm going to stand in the middle of the ring. I'm going to have a couple of exchanges with him just to let him know I'm not just running for the sake of running. I can plant down yeah. and show you I can actually box any way you want to box, which is what Tyson Fury would have done. Fury would have said, yeah. I've got three rounds in the bag. Then we're going to have 30 seconds of fun with this guy. Throw a few uppercuts, really sit down on some shots. We know he did it with Chisora, if you remember, where he boxed and boxed him until he realized Chisora was intimidated by the jab. And then Fury started to crank it. This was in the second fight. And he started to crank it. And eventually that pressure tells on the opponent because you're saying, whatever I do, this guy has an answer and <laughs> it hurts. And Huey just didn't have any yeah. of that. So then you've got, oh, I'll go back to the trainer. Is Peter Fury as good as we've said he is? Is he really the, the golden key to heavyweight success? Well, sh- surely it doesn't matter how good you are as a trainer. It's also going to matter how, you're, how good you are as a boxer, right? Because like you said, he's telling yeah. Huey sound advice in the corner and Huey's not being able to pull it off. Well, we, don't know what, yeah. we don't know what was done in training, right? Like for me, for example, Adam Booth. What's done in training needs to be done in the fight. So had Adam Booth been in that corner, it would have just been simple instructions. Right, you know what? Now bring the right hand in. Yeah, I need you to double up on that right hand or I need you to bring the left uppercut in into the left hook. Yeah. And that's what yeah, makes but me I, special. I, I think what Andy's trying to say, though, is, yeah, you could be as good as you, you want to be as a coach or a trainer, but if the fight is not reciprocating what you're trying to teach them and guide them with, then there's only so much you can do as a coach. So Adam Booth, for example, you're saying, yeah, he's been great with um, fighters that he's worked with and he does work with now, but he's also fallen out of a lot of fighters who he's ended up not working with. And you have to question, is it just a matter of, Maybe because those fighters are not, you know, picking up what he's trying to um, guide them with, so he's going a different way to, um, from them. I think. I, know, think, I think some of the guys the... wanted a summer camp, and he just wasn't offering summer camps, so, <laughs> so they, they went elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it could be that. It could be that. But then, obviously, so he, he. But then, either way, he has the luxury of being able to part ways with these guys, um, whether or not they've gone away for summer or not. Whereas. Mm-hmm. You know, Huey's there with his dad, and I'm not sure what the relationship's like, but I can imagine it'd be pretty awkward if Huey t- or turned around and went, you know, I'm not going to be, I don't want you to train me, or vice versa. So, um, it, yeah, I, I think there's probably, there's a degree of, you know, Huey's being told things, and it, it looks like if he's not listening in a fight, what else is he not listening to? Exactly. Yeah, that, that yeah would, that's a that good would point. Be, that would be my worry, which is what, what I felt in the fight. It's almost as if, you know, pe- Peter Fury's seeing it and he's seeing the fight slip and Huey's probably going in that ring going, this feels easy, which is always a risky position to have. But I think the mindset I try and encourage in the guys that I train is this. You're always seeking to dominate in every round. You know, however you choose to do that is that's what training camp's for. But psychologically, you're looking to dominate. If if the guy's getting confidence behind the jab, take it away. I'm very much of that Bernard Hopkins school of thinking of actually, if you take the guy's biggest weapon away, you've probably won 40% of the fight just by doing that. Which takes on my other question. How do you deal with a, par- a fighter like Parker? Because he kept coming forward, kept coming forward, kept coming forward, but he also didn't seem to tire. Even when Huey was running him around, he just kept coming forward you all the time. You just stand there. They don't know run. You know what? You burn 20% more energy going backwards than you do going forwards. Like, that's that's a biological yeah. fact. It's also, not, it's also not just that. Um, again, from the highlights, it looks like, you know... Huey was happy to just stay back and let Parker steam forward. So Parker steaming forward at his own pace. And whenever you're working at your own pace, you're always going to keep up. I mean, he's had 
what, a 12-week camp or whatever it is, why can he not do 12 rounds if he's working at his own pace? He's probably done that day in, day out in the camp. Right, okay. So it's about cranking the pressure up or making him work at your pace or make, giving him something else to think about. Make it uncomfortable. Yeah, right. yeah just distorting the rhythm, basically. Because if you stand in the middle of the ring and go, I'm not moving anywhere, what's going to happen? The ref's going to have to separate you at some point or he's going to have to go backwards. But if you go backwards, what you're doing is, it's like if you've ever been there with someone's dog, right? Dogs love to take space because it establishes dominance. So if you take a step back with the dog, a dog will always step forward. Yeah, the easiest way to deal with dogs, no matter how aggressive, is actually to walk forward because then the dog's like, oh, you're walking forward. Uh, I need to assess whether I want to engage in that. And it, it, it's those small psychological cues that fighters subconsciously understand, or well, some of them subconsciously understand them, but I don't think a lot of coaches teach those psychological cues, which are, you need to establish that, that almost that non-verbal dominance in the ring, which says, actually, I'm in control here. What are you going to do? You know, we're going to talk about this later, but I always hark back to the Andre Ward, Carl Froch fight, where before the fight, everyone said, Frost would be far too strong for Ward. So the first thing Ward did, if if anyone remembers that fight, is tie up Carl Froch, push him back into the corner, and just whip a left hook into his jaw, basically just saying, what do you want to do now? Okay, so Sam Khan asked me um, when she found out that, because uh, in confession time, I paid for it on YouTube. Right? <laughs> so there's one then. Right. <laughs> but the reason I did this, right, was because I did think about it. I thought about streaming it and I thought about maybe, um, I thought to myself, oh, I'm sure I'll be able to see any fight. And then people were saying it was going to be boring and obviously you guys included. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to buy it, not because I think it's going to be an epic fight or not because I'm a massive fan of Fury Fury or anything like that. I bought it because it felt like it was a vote. And I thought to myself, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy for the stuff to be on YouTube. I don't see, I don't have a negative opinion of it. And given that it's a trial, I thought it's best to just, you know, buy a ticket and just go, you know what? There you go. That's my 10 penneth. I think it's a good idea to put on YouTube. Um, I didn't go out, so I didn't, I didn't spend more money. I would have spent more money going out last night, you know? So ultimately, I kind of, it was buying a vote, if you like. Yeah, agreed. The boxing world needs more people like you, Andy. <laughs> 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 you know, I'll be honest, I really didn't expect that. I expected if, if, get... I could find, if I could find another 100,000 of you, I'd be a very rich boxer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if to take that as a compliment or not, but... <laughs> I was... It is a compliment to you. <laughs> there is, there's times um, when I, I think, we've talked about it before, that pay-per-view on Sky and stuff like that, and it's and it's utter dross. But if you if you consider the fact that a pay per view on Sky is never what they ask you to pay, it's your monthly fee broken down plus the fee of the pay per view. I thought yeah. fifteen quid off the bat just for a fight, um, uh, you know, and it had exactly the same production values, all by the uh, national anthems, than uh, <laughs> everything else, which was mildly embarrassing, I must admit. Um, but but look, yeah. Mick Hennessy, man. I think I described Mick Hennessy yesterday as that guy who took a tip on a horse, thought it would be cast iron, and just bet all his rent money on the horse, and the horse just fell over and died. And he was like that at the end. <laughs> I, I don't know if anyone heard the Hennessy interview. Like I heard it on the, the BBC. The guy went absolutely mental. Like He, he imploded. And he was accusing people what, of nobbling was, the was judges. Was he not in agreement with the decision, or was he upset about the performance? No, no. He, well, he thought his exact words were Huey was skating it, which... 
you know, I don't understand. But then he, he was talking about the judges being corrupt and how someone had clearly got to the judges and forced them to, to take the belt from Huey. And he was just losing. He was like a man, like, you know, I don't know if anyone's seen the film Trading Places. You know, when the, no. you know, you know, when the brothers lose all their money and the guy just goes absolutely crazy. And it was like that. It was that sort of meltdown where you've just, you know, Mick Hennessy probably pumped a lot of his own money into this. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a for sale sign outside his house right now. See, <laughs> didn't you think that the 118110 scoreline was a bit extreme? We discussed this last week, didn't we? That you can often find yourself, it's, it's that whole outcome bias again. You can look back on a fight and go, that can't be right. But looking forward, I'm sure those judges got halfway through and went, yeah, yeah, bit nip and tuck, bit nip and tuck. But, you know, I expect Huey to come on in the fight, whatever. And then you get to the end of the fight, you're like, oh, God, look at the scorecard I've just given. Mm. And, and you, you know what I mean? They probably watch the fight back and go, nah, it was never eight rounds difference between the two. Yeah, see, I could see a, yeah. a draw, and I it's even really commented on the fact that I could see it being a draw, and one of them obviously gave a draw, but I just, in the end, I, I, I thought 118, 110 was a bit extreme. But we're in the middle of an ideological shift in boxing at the moment. Like, if we go back five years, almost to the, to the height of the Mayweather effect, you know, you were getting rewarded for being that guy who could operate boxing backwards, being able to sit on the back foot and countering. You were getting rewarded for that. I think the fans got tired of that. And once Floyd retired, that movement lost its leader. Its spiritual leader had gone. You know, people say, oh, Andre Ward's a bit like Mayweather. Ward isn't like Mayweather because as you saw with Kovalev, Ward has no problem coming forward, you know. So I think what you're seeing now is that swing back. It, it, it oscillates every few years between come forward fighters and then counter punches. So I think we're going back to the come forward fighters. Now, if you really want to start winning things, you might have to be that come forward fighter with a little bit of aggression, which doesn't mean... So no, 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 hold on. No, no. We'll come to you in a second, Umar. You can tear Terry apart. So it doesn't mean you have to be a Michael Katsidis or a Jeff Horn and be a nutcase like that. But what it does mean is you need to show the judges that you can push the other guy back and you can hurt him with shots. And I and I think that's where we need to... You know I mean, I think it's a good mantra to have to say, look, every round, show me you can hurt this guy and I'll give you credit. You know, don't say all of this, I was countering on the back foot, I was there on the ropes. We've had that now. Give us something new to get excited about. Okay, Umar. <laughs> no, I, I was just saying, when you're saying, you know, you can't go out on the back foot and counter and win, I was, because I'm not, you know, your typical um, brawler or anything like that. That's I was just at fuck's sake. I'm going to go back to the drawing board and change everything. <laughs> Do you, like, so but, um, who would you necessarily put this down to? If, if, if there's a gravitational shift, could it be, could it be Anthony Joshua's sort of um, uh, rise? It can I, I, be. I don't know if there is a gravitational um, shift, but obviously Terry's saying that because he's noticed something that um, I haven't. But um, what I do think, when you get scorecards at 108-110, when there's a close fight, you, again, you guys discussed this last week, the judges are scoring the fight round by round. So they're not watching the entire fight and then going, yeah, this guy won so much more than the other guy. They're having to score the round as it happens and then at the end, add the totals up. So... If at the end of each round, it's a very close round, and one fighter just happens to do that one little thing that's um, more favourable to that judge, then they're going to give it to that fighter. 
it doesn't mean that that fight dominated the entire fight. It just means that they managed to win more rounds than the other fighter. So, um, and I think that's one of the things that a lot of um, boxing fans and especially casual boxing fans miss when they watch fights. Now, oh, there's no way that was a massive robbery, and you got a question: Well, was it really a robbery? Because, it, or another one that jars me. I've got to say this when I've got this opportunity is when people go, "Oh, well, he didn't do enough to um, win the world title or to take the titles home." And I say, well, in saying that, what you've just said or suggested is that the judges should recognise one person as the champion and the other person as a challenger. But mm-hmm. then, if the you cannot, if like I can't see how a human being can start distinguishing between two people's statuses without being biased. Yeah, well, that is that is for me. That's a definition of bias. Exactly. So when people go, oh, well, he didn't do enough to win the belt, I always say, well, then you're asking the judges to be biased whilst complaining about them being biased. (laughs) 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 It's an oxymoron, really. Oh, brilliant. You've got got to look at it. The the judges have got to watch it and see two individuals, regardless of status, boxing and who is satisfying the judging criteria better than the other person. And that's who's going to win the round. So when you then come, when someone comes along with an argument of, well, he didn't do enough to win the title or take the title home, I say, well, then you're saying the judges should be biased. You can't pick and choose, you know. Um, so there's that to factor in as well. But again, 108, 110, I didn't watch the fight. But if it was a stinker like everyone's saying it was, maybe the judges didn't even know who to give it to because no one's doing anything and they've just gone, you know, ching chang wallow or whatever. Yeah, and. And I, I think this is this is the point because people say, "How do you fix the judging thing?" And I say, "You don't want to go back to judges sat there with clickers because that that's an even bigger farce than yeah, anything that's a else." Bit mental, that. So then you go, "What what do you do?" If you remember, the PBC tried this, so the PBC tried to move the judges away from ringside, so they sat the judges a bit further back. Um, all sorts of different things have been tried. Do you have judges in a room where they can just watch the fight and can't hear anything? I don't know, but. You know, there has to be a way that we can moderate this because we're leaving far too much human error in 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 events that are increasingly of multi-million pound significance, like like a referee in football. Exactly. <laughs> I see. I, so to address a couple of questions, uh, Andy, how did you find YouTube? That was Sam Khan on the basis that I'd already told her that. I'd paid for YouTube. I found it okay, as I've kind of mentioned. The, the production values were similar. Um, the only thing was I felt like the um, the high definition that I'd get through Sky Channel was a bit a bit naff. I didn't get it through. Whether that's my connection speed or what, I don't know. But it wasn't quite as crisp as I would normally get for a TV. Um, How do you even find it? Uh, I Actually, that, do you know do what? You go I, on YouTube and type in Parker Fury and then the video comes up. <laughs> that's exactly like. what I did. <laughs> Well, I did. I did at first go onto onto the um, app on my phone, and then I went onto trending. Nothing there. I'm thinking, sure they're going to advertise this. No, I went into search bar. I did layman's type in Parker Fury. It came up. Then there was a two channels. There was one channel showing the free undercard, which I assume was just going to end as soon as the main fight came up. And there was the main boxing channel. Uh, I think it was Hennessy Sports, and it was called My Boxing Channel, or the Boxing Channel, or something. So I tried to click on that and it said, you have not completed the purchase. So then I had to go on my laptop because you couldn't do it off your phone to buy it, which was then... So this is worse than the ITV setup? Uh, In some respects. But what I would say is because YouTube is uh, a Google company, once I pressed buy, 
it was all connected to my card, which went bosh. Once you've bought it, it was like, okay, connected. Then I used my phone to stream onto my television via my Chromecast. So it was, it, yes, it was convoluted in a sense. I had to get my laptop out and I couldn't do it off my phone. That was annoying. But once I'd done that, it was very simple. I didn't have to sit there with my card details out and start like, you know, give sending off blood tests to make sure it was me or anything like that. It wasn't. It wasn't anything like that. But um, yeah. Because the thing uh, is, I think we've discussed this before. I think YouTube is the future. I genuinely do because what what you're able to then do on on a platform like YouTube is you mean you can you can play with pricing sensitivities, right? If if it's not selling at fifteen quid, you can bring it down to ten. See what the uptake is. You can have that variable pricing. I think Uber call it sort of surge pricing. So you you can have dynamic pricing, which I think is good. I think this is the wrong proposition to have. I think the guy who's really going to usher in that age is an Eddie Hearn. I think Hearn is probably the guy who will do that because I don't know what the nature of this deal was, but it struck me as being like, okay, can we just buy some space on your server? It felt desperate. Exactly. Um, And I haven't had, we haven't had a chance to talk to, I think it's Thomas, the guy who really runs this operation in the UK, but it'd be good. You know, he, he's got my Twitter address. Be good to have a conversation with him to understand what the commercials are behind this. Because, yeah. you know, look, even if they, let's just say theoretically they did 150,000. Well, actually, Craig at Fight Talk says, will we ever see the release of the pay-per-view numbers? And where does this actually leave Mick Hennessy? I think Hennessy's fucked. I think he's absolutely <laughs> fucked. You know, you know, F- Fury was loyal to him. Remember that. But then Fury hasn't fought for him since the Klitschko fights. So I'm like, where are you making your money from, Mick Hennessy? You know? You don't have a TV deal anymore. You, you're running around looking for a home and looking for friends and people are like, mate, we don't need you anymore. Sometimes, you know, you have to do the honourable thing and go, this game's passed me by. And I think Hennessy's in that point where he probably doesn't need the money and he's probably not that hungry to be successful in boxing anymore. He's just doing it because he's a fan who gets privileged access. But I just think he's screwed. Um, he, he blew his one chance to show he can promote. And I think Frank Warren's whole demeanor around this tells you what he thinks of McHennessy as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, so just one more thing to add to that. No, go for it, please. Just uh, based on your experience, Andy, uh, I, I think if this YouTube thing's going to work, the entire um, module around how it's promoted to the core, um, to the point of uh, call to action for the customer needs to change. So, like you've done that you've had to do all of those things to watch the fight because you're savvy with tech and you understand yeah. um you know these types of things evidently is what you do on the podcast now for the average person who can't be bothered to you know or for the average person who doesn't even have to fix the volume control in the sky remote that that sounds like a lot of things to do especially when you um, factor in the um, point that most people are probably going to have a few beers or whatever before they watch a boxing match. Are they really going to be bothered to go on YouTube, search and find this link and then register with a Google account if they don't have one and, you know, c- come back to stream it through the TV? It all just sounds a bit too much. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't operate a business model that works in that way. It needs to be easy. There needs to be promotion. It, it, it needs to be easy for someone to find the A, but also it needs to be in people's faces who may be interested. And then there need to be a maximum of two... Um, action cues to carry out in order to be able to watch well, it and it's just that you've gone through about eight steps I, I agree with you there and and what i found puzzling was to be honest my theory was that in some way this business this business interaction was weighted towards mick Hennessy. 
because Google slash YouTube didn't seem invested enough. Because the most simple thing for me would would, would, would seem to me would be that, so when I, I've got an Android phone, when I swipe to the right and look at my Google, it brings up, like I might have typed in like, I don't know, directions to Sainsbury's. I'll, I'll go onto my YouTube, uh, my Google feed, and it'll come up the CEO of Sainsbury's, and at the bottom it says, you have shown an interest in Sainsbury's. And I'm like, no, I'm not interested in Sainsbury's. I just wanted to go there one day. <laughs> so because I've, but, but because I've looked for after, uh, some things to do with boxing or whatever, it brings up regularly things like that. So if you're Google, yeah. why are you not sending out a, uh, a push message that says, there is a fight on, do you wish to purchase it? Click here to purchase it. Exactly. And then you go, and if you say no, it goes away. And if you say, uh, if you obviously say yes, you buy it. But if you don't, every time I go onto YouTube for something like that, even if I just open YouTube as someone who's never shown any interest in boxing, I would expect that to be the headline of there's, an, there's a live event coming up. Do you wish to purchase yeah. it? Yeah. So here's my take on it. Um, you can get two kinds of relationships here. So with someone like a Google, they can either be a service provider which means, here you go, here's access to our platform, do what the hell you want. Like Amazon Web Services. Do what the hell you want. Which is what I think Hennessy got. The other option is you have a legitimate partnership yeah. where, where where YouTube, Google, Alphabet, whichever part of the business it is, says, look, we want to get big into boxing. We can see that at this price point, we can generate this much money. This is how we will support you, McHennessy. We'll give you banner ads whenever the word boxing's typed. We'll give you banner ads. We'll put a little ad in the top right-hand screen with a call to action. We'll set, you know, we're setting up Google Pay. A little exclusive there for you people. We're setting up Google Play, Google Pay, sorry, which is just a nice one-click purchase. You know, yeah. Once you set it up, one-click purchase, you've got it. Why? Because you're able to then capture the people who would make that impulse purchase. If I give you three steps, that's three opportunities you can change your mind. Exactly what Umar said, yeah. 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 I think um, ultimately, do you remember Enron? Just yes. quickly, so Enron and Blockbuster both investigated the idea of streaming movies at one point, and look where they are now. Netflix picked up where the technology, yes, wasn't right at the time, but they came into that void. They picked up at the right time, and I feel like they might have. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> no, 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 well, they, no, they, no, no. And then Netflix came in and filled no. that. No, no, no. Right, go for it then. The pain point Netflix addressed was what happens if you take a video out and you pay late fees? So remember in the old days of Blockbuster, if you were two days late, it cost you more than the damn video cassette would cost you. Yeah. So Netflix actually started out as we'll post it to you, you post it back to us. There are no late fees. This is what you're going to pay per month. You can get all these movies. So they already had a successful business doing that. And then it was... Were, we were they were already competing with Blockbuster comfortably and beating them because it was a better experience. It was fric it was less friction than you would have had otherwise. The next move was then to say, "There's all this, you know, this bandwidth is increasing. Why do we need a massive inventory of video when we can digitize everything and have it on demand?" And that was the journey they went on. So if you if you actually look for from when Netflix actually started, which was probably the late nineties. Their real boom period was probably about probably six to ten years ago. I can't remember the exact year when the bandwidth caught up with their idea, yeah, so they were able yeah. to execute. They also approached Google to ask them if they wanted to buy them, and Google said no. It just strikes me, it just strikes me as something where someone's dipped their toe in the water, seen that there might be something, and someone else may come along and go, 
I can do this, but I can, you know, do it with bells on kind of thing. And it's that's always when, the second person that gets it right. Yeah. Okay, right. Stra- we, we may have strayed too far down this rabbit warren. No, the fans need that, though. We- <laughs> uh, right, questions. Um, I'm very thankful for everyone using this hashtag because that has made everything a bit easier. Only problem is now, if I miss any questions off, I'm going to get lynched. On a side note, man, everyone make sure they follow Umar Sadiq at Top Boxer Sadiq, Instagram and and Twitter as well. You know. Yeah. Do it or your social media accounts will be disabled in two days. <laughs> <laughs> He's got connections. Um, Vassos V um, asks, is the problem that Fury did not do enough to win the world title? But we did... Uh, Umar, you know, um, went through that pretty pretty nicely. Um, what do each of you favour more when scoring a fight? By Paul Altay. Uh, start with you, Umar. If you were judging a fight, what are the what are the key points that you would value most in scoring? Um, I'll go for the key points that I think judges should always be looking at, uh, to the best of my understanding, which would be um, effective aggression effective defense ring generalship and um damage um most damage caused so um or it's been accumulation of the lot so you can have a round where a person um lands i don't know five or six eye-catching shots but um you know they threw maybe 90 punches in the round so the connect percentage was ridiculously low uh, meaning the aggression wasn't effective um the other the opponent clearly is showing effective defense and um, probably ring generalship as well if they're making them miss that much so you know those things will counteract those five heavy shots to some extent um it's just a matter of looking at the, the whole lot of the four judging criterias um holistically and then deciding you know overall which ones who who has you know scored a better um score and aggregate overall all four factors and that's how i judge it really but I think a lot of times people get carried away with just focusing on who's landed the biggest shot and ignoring all the other factors that come into it. Okay. Um, look, so when I'm judging a fight, um, I'm looking for I'm looking for three things essentially. I know there are judging criteria, but once you've subsumed those judging criteria into the way you look at boxing, what will tend to happen is you start to it becomes subconscious. So then you're looking for those higher order things of you know, who's demonstrating the intelligence, who's demonstrating control. So the thing I really look for is who's really controlling the round, you know, who's controlling the narrative of that round. And it might even be someone who makes you miss 20 times, but he's in control of that situation because he's like, you're not going to hit me, but I'm going to hit you. So I think control is an important one because when you start to look at fights and you go, well, who's in control? Like I look, I was watching the Canelo Triple G fight. And Wait, I sorry, that'll be the Rick general shit. Yes, but for me, ring generalship is you control where the fight happens, if you see what I mean. But for this, this is more you control the pace, the tempo, and the psychology of it. I also think that's the same thing, though. Mm. Because, yeah, because if you're controlling where the fight happens, you're essentially controlling the tempo of the fight. Not necessarily. So, so I'll go back to, we'll go back to, you know, I like to do this. So a boxer like Bob Foster, for example. Spencer Fearinism? No, no, no. Come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) He's getting pelters this week, Terry. (laughs) Why did I phone you, Omar? I didn't need this. 
I didn't need this today, no. of all days. Please continue, no. Spencer. And, 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 the, and the reason I pick him is he was sufficiently dominant in terms of fighting. And what I liked about him was he had, he had this fear factor of his left hook. So he could always just faint that. And psychologically, it would break people. It didn't like he could he could give you the middle of the ring if he wanted. He could take the middle of the ring, but you wouldn't necessarily want to step in that space because you were so scared of him. Because he was he you know, go on YouTube the guy. The reason I highlight him, he's a very dangerous guy. But there were all these almost intangible elements to it. Not not just necessarily you know putting people in the corner so you can take him out. It was I need to strip you of everything you've come into this ring okay. with. Can I ask you who was the most aggressive? forward focused fighter that Mayweather fought and how did he control that fight was he on the back foot did he did he stand in the center of the ring did it like um Floyd will vary so so look we saw the Maidana fight where Mayweather was a bit older so he took to the ropes used the ropes to hold his weight so he wasn't burning too much energy and once he got his timing in with Maidana could start to counter and as I always say you know you only walk Mayweather down for a certain number of rounds before you realise those punches hurt. With, yeah. with, with, Castillo and Emmanuel Augustus did a good job of it as well. Agreed. Um, you know, for those who don't know Emmanuel Augustus, they call him the drunken master. Um, probably the most unorthodox fighter you'll ever see. Like, the guy saw a different ring to anyone else I've seen in a long time. Um, but was just unlucky with promotion. So he never really got the, the platform he deserved. But if you look at the Hatton fight, for example... You know, Ricky Hatton came in with that intent to bully on the inside. And Mayweather said, I'll stay on the inside and I'll just pick you off on the inside as well. So that's the thing with Floyd. Floyd had every tool in the in the box. Like, there's no debate about that. Floyd solved every problem ever put in front of him. The problem is not everyone is Floyd. Okay, uh, Ross McVicker asks, what now for Huey Fury after a poor build-up and average performance? Uh, and is Mick Hennessy clearly on crystal meth, or is it just me? Um, look, Huey Fury, summer camp. You know, like just straight summer camp. Become more explosive. Do some box jumps or something. <laughs> like he's, he's, he's not an intimidating heavyweight because you don't get the impression that he'll put you on your backside. Like, you know what I mean? Andre Ward could have fought that guy the weight Andre Ward is now and probably beaten him. Yeah, she, I, I, I need to find out but somebody and i will give you a name check when i finally find you has asked could huey do with putting on a, a stone of muscle basically well no i don't know if it's putting on the stone of muscle it's becoming more explosive he he's not explosive and you can look at his body and you can go this guy doesn't have many of those type 2a fast twitch fibers he just doesn't have those so then what do you do you know i mean summer camp yes but i mean he's been accused of visiting camp already right and that hasn't really... Yeah, but uh, I hope you're not promoting summer camp because you're saying it like it's an option. No, I'm not I'm not saying that. Well, I'm saying he's he's that much up against the eight ball that that might be his only option. I, you know, on this show, we do oh, not encourage any form of nefarious activity. Boxing should remain a clean sport. <laughs> <laughs> but he needs to do some compulsory Microsoft Excel lessons is what you're saying. Well, well, he, I think the Fury camp needs to sit there and they need to go, the stuff that works for Tyson isn't going to work for the rest of these guys. Because they've got who else? They've got the other heavyweight, Con Sheehan, right? They've got another guy there. So, you know, and they've got that that Dutch guy that comes over and spars. Look, all of that being awkward, trying to be too much of an ingle fighter is great, but number one, it gives a shit product. Let's be honest, right? right? 
Sorry, I, I, I found out who this... It was David McGinley that asked, also could few benefit from adding a stone of muscle. But then he goes on to say, his style means being lean and athletic is important, but I feel that he needs to add more power to keep his opponents from walking him down without any fear of a heavy counter. So what is that, style yeah. or is that power that he needs to work on? Probably power, because he landed quite a few good counters on Parker, and Parker didn't seem to care. Look, you crack someone with a properly executed right uppercut, right? They'll calm down. Whatever they were going to do to you before, they'll calm down for a little while and go, hmm, okay. But but you know, but these are the things that he should already know. I I shouldn't have to tell Huey Fury that. Like Jesus, like wasn't he like European world cha- European champion as a as an amateur or something? Again, David McGinley asks, will Fury have learned a lot from that fight last night? No. Yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Umar, let's go to you first. Yeah. I- he would have because he would have learned what it was like to box um, at world level. Um, the, the pressures that came in, um, he would. I think he would learn more from it than if he had won from it because now he's gonna. Well, you would expect him to look back and analyze the fight a lot better and be and critique his performance a lot better, allowing him to identify areas of development going forward. As opposed to if you won it and just thought, well, boxing is easy, I can still, you know, do what I've been doing so far and I'll be all right in the next fight. But then obviously the other guys at the heavyweight championship um, level are different animals to what Parker is. Terry? Look, let's be brutally honest, right? Huey Fury shared a ring with Tyson. He shared a ring with Conchie and he shared a ring recently with Joe Joyce. He's He's been in pretty high level company and... If if he wasn't solving these problems during that period, I'm slightly worried about what he's been doing with his time. Do you see what I mean? So that that's not a fight. Like Parker didn't introduce anything. Like the, he, he wasn't he wasn't the Matrix in there. It wasn't like Joseph Parker was Lomachenko, where you're like, we've never seen this before. The guy walked forward. I mean, he may as well just have had a pitchfork. He was that agricultural. <laughs> um. I a question when I when I watched them reading out the scores, um, they scored obviously one bloke scored it one fourteen apiece, and when they read out they scored it one ten one eighteen two. Joseph Parker rolled his eyes and looked as though all right okay nice one I know where this is I know where this is going as though he'd already decided that Fury was about to get his arm raised. And when his arm, when Parker's arm was raised, he looked, he looked shocked to me. So, do you think that they both underestimated each other? Um, someone said it best on Twitter. Parker's look progressively worse with every fight, just physically in terms of the shape he comes in, and also in his performances. But I think there was a narrative in the seven days up to that fight. You know, Parker's been having meetings with. Hayes team, he's been having meetings with Hearn's team. Yeah. He's been he's been planning, he's been plotting, he's been scheming. Um, you know, the Fury camp were like, you know, is this guy going to pull out for a more lucrative fight? There was all this uncertainty. And then, you know, we know about um was it David Higgins, the 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 Duco Vents guy who who just showed up at the press conference completely off his head. And, you know, there's all this tension where I think the the Parker camp thought they were going to be done dirty. They said, look, we're coming into this home territory, there's no way they're going to reward us. So for them to have left the lion's den pretty much intact is brilliant. I, I don't imagine they'd ever give the Fury camp any kind of attention or time again after that because they just looked like they wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. 
Umar, do you think there's anything in that? Do you think that it certainly seemed to me that Huey had underestimated Parker? I think he felt like this was going to be a walk in the park. Um, but Parker, it seemed to me, had underestimated how Huey was going to box and what he was and what he was going to do were Huey to box like that. I mean, feel free to talk, tell me if I'm talking shit. Uh, it's going to be hard to say if I've um, without watching the fight. Um, but what I can say is, um, watching the build-up, Huey looked more confident than Parker did. So even though Parker came across, obviously, as you would do, leading up to a fight, confident, he, he didn't seem like he thought it was a given. Whereas Huey um, had an approach of a man who believed that this was his destiny. And regardless of what happened in the night, he was going to walk away the winner. I'd be interested. I wonder if they ever faced each other in the amateurs. They're about the same. They're definitely the same amateur generation. Huey Fury, um, Joe Parker, and Tony Yoka are definitely of that same ilk. I'd wonder if they'd ever faced each other before. There's two years between them, I think. I think Joseph Parker's 25, Huey's 23. Yeah, so, so there'd have been a degree of overlap there, I'd, I'd imagine. But I, I, that's just probably something for me to look into. Because I know Parker lost to Yoka when they were younger. And I imagine Yoka's looking at that going, as soon as I'm off paternity leave, you know, I might come after <laughs> Joseph Parker. <laughs> might be summer camp. Don't know. We'll call it paternity leave. How many, is it every, are you keep making a new name every week in case like, everyone tries to keep up? In case I get sued. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to... Well, I guess we've we got anything... Have we got anything more to say about Parker Fury? We have spoken about it in depth. I think it's it's encompassed a few other things, so I think we'll move on from here. Are you okay with that, Umar? Yes, sir. Smashing, right. Um, Linares Campbell, another, another judging... I don't know what you'd call it. Hiccup? <laughs> no, no. No? No, okay. No, no. Right, so... Cause, so, so to explain, one judge scores in favour of Campbell, two judges score in favour of Linares. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm sympathetic to that because I I watched the fight, and those who know me well now, I've always thought Jorge Linares is massively overrated. You know, this guy's got away with having fancy haircuts, nice t-shirts, and sunglasses for too long, and that seems to have impressed a lot of the <laughs> casual fans because they are nice sunglasses. It, if you followed Linares for long enough, I think what you remember about Linares is the times he goes to pieces, right? And he goes to pieces when he doesn't get it his own way. And Campbell was perfectly set up to not give him his own way. Campbell's long, he's rangy. Um, you know, he, he's held on to that amateur style. I know people criticized him for it, but it, it helped him in this fight because he's able to just keep it long, sliding off on the back foot after he'd done his work. And Linares took ages to figure it out. Um, I think he thought it was going to be an easier gig than it was. I was worried when I saw he was so active on social media in the build-up to the fight. Him, Joe Joyce, the guy Sam Jones were just posting up these videos regularly. And I thought, this guy isn't focused for Luke Campbell. And Campbell had everything to prove. And he seemed to fight with that. I don't think Campbell has any bells and whistles to his game. But in terms of being a one-two merchant with a couple of hooks layered in as well, I think Campbell's probably as, as solid as a British fighter is going to be doing that. And Linares got out of it because you could see he did the four rounds on, four rounds off, four rounds back on again. And he just about got away with it. Um, I just think Linares is overhyped and overrated. And he's not far off getting his backside handed to him again. I see what Terry's saying about 
um, Linares being overhyped because I followed him for a long time as well from when he first went to Japan expands it. Um, but it's hard to not like a guy who does dress so smart and has fancy hair. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and has sound effects for his own punches. He, he does, you know, like the old Western movies when the guns are like, tew, tew. like he does that when he's punching. That you know, he's just like a complete entertainment package. You can't dislike the guy. So um, I don't know. Maybe he does come unstuck at some point. But whilst he's here, I'm surely gonna um, enjoy what he brings to boxing, the dynamic he brings to boxing. Um, one of the things that I look at in boxing as well as a fighter myself, who's trying to make the most out of this sport as possible, is um, when people at like Linares are in the sport. I think it draws in. Um, a certain um, level of ca- casual um, fans or just a certain level of attention to the sport that I can um, also benefit from. So it's like um, boxing is this big, massive thing at the moment um, where, you know, even corporate people and all the rest of it really enjoy it and want to come and watch it. And you have to feel like the success of AJ has had a lot to play in that, especially in the UK. So when you have someone like Linares that can show, well, your average boxer is not always just... Um, Someone who's come off a, I don't know, a building site with a fag in his mouth just, you know, the night before the fight and they do, couldn't string seven sentences together in a row. Uh, the, someone like Linares comes and breaks that stereotype. And for me, that that works well because then automatically we become more appealing and more relatable to the average person. Yeah, so, if, um, if anything, I suppose Linares, if, if he is indeed overrated, um, is... He's almost building a nice narrative for someone to take him down. If he's if well, if he's beating Quala twice and Campbell once, then regardless of however rated he is, to a casual fan, he's going to look wow, this guy is the real deal, sort of thing. Yeah, and he's a world champion. So you've got to respect his management because I remember when Sergio Thompson beat this guy into submission. Um, I think it was an eleventh round stoppage. Get my Spencer Fear on going there. <laughs> <laughs> now, so look, when he lost to Sergio Thompson. If you look at his record post Sergio Thompson, he didn't fight anyone of any note. And then I think with the Kevin Mitchell fight, he realized that there was an untapped fan base in the UK that he could milk, which he's done. So so he's fought British fighters knowing that skill-wise, they don't have the tools to cause him trouble. So if he fights these Mexican or Latino fighters who will bring it to him for 12 rounds, he tends to break mentally. And then, I mean, he cuts Mm. up easy... He he he's not a he's not a guy who can fight well from behind, um, and he's been found out. I think he got found out against uh, was it Demarco as well who who dealt with him comfortably. So L- Linares basically hasn't taken a risk since the Sergio Thompson loss. I know he's calling out Mikey Garcia, but Mikey Garcia will he'll he'll end that fight in four rounds in my opinion because yeah, Mikey is calling. Yeah, and 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 that's that's what I say. I like Linares as a fighter. I think there are very few punch pickers better than he is he throws wonderful punches wonderful combinations but he's a typical (laughs) (laughs) but but get out of mud this town ain't big enough for the both of us (laughs) but he's he's another one off the roach bandwagon isn't he like you know freddie roach creates these guys who attack beautifully and then when someone stands up to them and starts pushing them backwards you realize roach doesn't teach the other bit of boxing so i think and, and I don't think Salas can fix that. He's 32 years old. I can ex- I imagine Linares will spend the next year and a half just finding the biggest money fights he can. And then whenever he's willing to drop that belt, someone will pay him a big enough check. Okay, um, I want to ask you, what did Campbell do? How, how did Campbell pull it back? 
Yo, after getting knocked down in the second. Fish and chips, man. That's all it was. It was just <laughs> fucking... It was just... Campbell was just fish and chips. I'm going to jab and throw my backhand. That left hand to the body every time. He kept throwing it. And the thing is, because Linares would react to it, it was clearly scoring. And that's all Campbell had to do. One, two, one, two hook, take a little step back. Linares couldn't get past the reach. And Campbell had the active jab. So... It wasn't like he fought his way back into the fight. He just kept inching it, inch by inch, just working his way back into the fight. Can I ask how you had it at the end in um, terms of scoring? Hand on heart, I didn't score this one. Okay. But right. but when I saw the scorecards, my sense of it was, and it's, it's not the most accurate way to measure it, was I'm not I'm not disappointed because I'd, it wasn't a Linares masterclass. It wasn't like what he did to Anthony Corolla, as Delahoya <laughs> likes to call him. <laughs> <laughs> is it because he's like subtly trying to plug in Corona who he works with all the time <laughs> <laughs> it's all marketing man. <laughs> like, he, he might just be on the same stuff David Higgins was on <laughs> you know De La Hoya has form for that okay <laughs> let's move on then to uh, here we go Daughter- no, sorry before we move on just to make a point part of the highlights I saw oh, yeah, um, there was a clip where I saw where Lenaris dropped someone of a right hand in sparring and the right hand he dropped Luke Campbell with was very similar to the same um, right hand. And it was just um, last week, Terry was talking about how spectacular it is to watch people doing fights what they're doing in training. I thought that's worth putting in there. Yeah, no, yeah, good point. Well made. Um, I, I, I'm a sucker for that. When I see that straight line from, I'll start from what you do in your shadow boxing to what you do on the bags, to what you do in the pads, to what you do in sparring, to what you do in a fight, that's someone that you want to sign straight away because you know he will learn it's yeah it's when i see people you know they're, they're lackluster in the shadow boxing they go mental on the bag work they look confused on the pad work and then inspiring they go to pieces then i start to worry so no no it's, it's good to see you know linaris is working and clearly salas is having an effect on him but you know she, when he shows me some defensive intelligence i think i'll take linaris a little more so seriously. what did campbell not do enough of to win that fight then just i mean he wasn't throwing the four punch combinations i think he could have got away with um okay right moving on then um to uh, back in it again dortikos versus kudryashov is that a good start yeah no no What's yeah so that was the world super series of boxing the world boxing super series i never know which order the words go in Air cruiserweight division. This is the second fight, so this is the second quarterfinal. Um, Dortikos, the Cuban cruiserweight. Now he came to prominence. I think it was a 2005 amateur World Cup in Russia. So he was part of the same team as Yuriorkis Gamboa, um, Ugas, Luis Ortiz was in there. Orlandia Salis was in there. Uh, Rigandau was in there as well. So it's a pretty stacked team but these apart from Rigondeaux these were all sort of second tier Cuban fighters which tells you how good the standard is in Cuba and so he came off of that conveyor belt I think he turned pro in 09 and now this is the first chance we get to see what he does he's only had 22 fights since 2009 but when you saw the knockout um wow I didn't I, I didn't expect that punch would have that effect so he's just basically Worked him with a jab because Ryshoff has, weirdly enough, he's kind of turned and given him the angle to throw the right hand towards the temple. Um, probably just an incorrect defensive chain, 
pinged that straight right through and he just went over. And that, that was the end of the fight. Second round stoppage. And Dortikos yeah. moves on. I, I, th- I think it was because the first right hand had hurt him and um, had him, you know, somewhat discombobulated. And that put him in a vulnerable position where the second right hand was able to come in and land flush. And th- that would be why he was... Um, he, I don't think it was a conscious thing where he's dropped his guard and, you know, he's been clipped. I think he was just actually hurt and trying to deal with the first punch and then the yeah. second one came Because the weird thing is he didn't even drop his guard. It's almost like the guard was in the right place, but he turned his head to the side. So so the hand wasn't where it was supposed to be. And so, yeah. so credit to Dortikos for, for seeing that or gambling that that would happen and just, you know, ending the fight when he did. Okay, um, we will move on to the Goodwin show. Uh, but Martin- Wait, before you move on from that, I just want to give a big shout out. I'm going to do um, a bit of um, Captain Dharmaism. Um, so, <laughs> so have I got have I got time to go for a, go and have my dinner then? <laughs> <laughs> no, go for it. Go on. Now, um, my amateur teammate um, from the Nigerian boxing team, Effort Turbo Apolchi, who's um, signed with um, Richard Schaefer, had his second professional bout on that same card with the Dortskus card. And he scored a first round knockout with um, three knockdowns. Then. So, yeah, as an increased weight division as well. So, a potential future opponent for Dortikos. So, yeah, if it's over, I'll you look out for him. Training with Ronnie Shields out in um, Texas. And Ronnie Shields, as people know, is a trainer I've got a lot of time for. He's, I never know, has he got Jamal Charlo as well? So yeah, he has. Charlo, he's got Trout. him and he's got the Nigerian super heavyweight as well. Yeah, he's got Trout. Yeah. He's, got, he's got the other guy as well that... Um, uh, Andre Ward stopped. I know we're going to talk about Andre Ward soon. Um, Barrera, the, not Barrera, is it? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Solomon Barrera, yeah. Is it, wow, as well. that's a so, yeah. so basically, so literally two sides of the same town. You have got Ronnie Shields, and I think you've got Derek James on the other side. He's got the other Charlie brother, Errol Spence, um, Rob Brandt as well. So basically, if you really want good sparring and good work, get yourself down to Texas, which is what I'll be doing very soon. Wow, mm-hmm. and you heard it here first. Learned it here first. So anyone that's listening wants to come out to Texas, give me a shout. But first, you got to follow me, Top Boxer Sadiq, and then we'll plan it together. Any plans <laughs> to take O'Hara Davis with you? <laughs> um, I'll have a chat with him. We'll see. <laughs> um, okay, moving on. We have the Goodwin Show, but Martin has chipped in, and um, he's going to tell us all about it in his little clip. I'm recording this one, uh, what are we now, about seven hours into an Irish dancing competition. So if nobody's heard from me by about Monday afternoon, can you uh, can you send out some, some search parties? So yeah, let's look at the Goodwin show from Saturday night down at York Hall. You had um, top of the bill, Wally Camacho versus Ozzy Gervier. The uh, Southern Area Cruiserweight title fight didn't catch fire at all, really, as, uh, as many people had hoped. Let's be blunt about this. Waddy's best days are behind him. He'd have dealt with someone like uh, like Ozzy fairly easily in the past. Um, but in the end, he, he claimed a very, very close point to victory. Um, retained that Southern Area title. And then, uh, yeah, you had Louis Green versus Freddie Kiewit. The Southern Area welterweight title fight. Um, what a war. Two lads that, like, they really went for it. Just stood on each other's toes and threw shots, hooks, bombs uppercuts, overhands, just stood on each other's toes for uh, for the full 10-round fight. Uh, it's one of those ones where you really didn't want to be the referee because um, the referee's also scoring the fight. And you just thought, I don't know how you how you score that at all. Uh, and in the end, Louis Green goes away with uh, with the welterweight title, Southern Area. 
Um, and then, yeah, you had Spiros Dimitru versus Danny Cousins. So Spiros undefeated cruiserweight. Danny Cousins mixed record. Um, and Spiros just got, like, schooled, to be honest. It was, uh, yeah, he's too short to be a cruiserweight. I've said this many times about him in the past. He tries to take this, like, Tyson-esque um, short squat approach. But, you know, he finally came up against someone with a bit of talent who's over six foot. And uh, Danny just kind of played with him, really. A really wide uh, points victory. I think it was eight rounds to two. The rest scored it. I might be wrong. But, uh, yeah, it was a good fight. Danny, you know, he just had everything his own way for, for the majority of the fight. Um, then a shout-out to Linus Udofia. Linus, I mention his name all the time. His name's never far from my lips. Linus, uh, he was fighting Ashley Bailey Demet, someone that Terry's familiar enough with. Um, it's it his hardest fight today. Ashley's a talented fighter. He's a rugged fighter. Um, and then in the fifth round, uh, coming off the ropes. And Linus is quite happy fighting off the ropes. He's, uh, he's very skilled defensively and offensively. Um, and Linus just picks him off with this, this beautiful uppercut which sends uh, Demet's head back and then Demet's can't recover and he tries to fire back which it was just really poor form he should have just kind of covered up and uh, accepted where he was at at that point um, but he tried to fire back and big right hand perfectly timed by Linus um, just floored Demet's who, who wasn't getting back up look I've said before about Linus this lad is special people need to keep an eye out for him He's talking about, uh, he wants Taylor Jones next, which for those that are aware of the kind of southern area scene around that weight, that's a cracking fight between two young lads. Um, and hopefully we get to see that sooner. Here's Steve Goodwin's going to be putting a phone call in um, to try and get Tay for uh, for Linus soon. As he moves towards area level, they're building him right. These are right building fights. Um, and yeah, just keep an eye out. Linus Udofia, special talent. There you go. Okay, so there you hear it from Martin. He was there, tells you all about it, and I've just inserted it in, and I have no idea what he said, so. <laughs> no, nor do I. I. I saw one clip of that whole card, and it was Linus Adolfia stopping Ashley Bailey Demetz. Um, that was impressive. Oh, that was good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that, and you know what? And I think I said this at the time. I said, it's the Miguel's curse. Like, Miguel's is this gym where you walk in as a good boxer, leave as an average boxer. <laughs> and, and, I, and I can't understand why, and, and I... I love Isaac Chamberlain to death and I'm hoping that he doesn't get brushed with that curse either because, you know, we've talked about Domac and Lardy for a long time here. He went to Miguel's and he's like, he's not even as good as he was as an amateur. Um, And Ash, to be honest, I just feel if Ash had stayed at Fitzroy Lodge and trained under Mark Rygate, he'd have given that a better shot. But I don't know how you, I don't know how you talk to some of these young guys and persuade them, look, Find someone who's going to give you the winning formula. Because if anyone saw that stoppage, what surprised me was, and this is the problem with British boxers, no one moves in behind their punches. So people just put their hands up, get the earmuffs on and walk forward. Whereas if you look at probably more educated boxers, they always come in behind a shot. So, you know, like, you know, you've got military background and it's the concept of almost like suppression fire. You, You just fire some bullets to get the opposition thinking. While you're while you're inching forward, right? Okay. You know, it's not necessarily it's a distraction technique. Yeah. So you come in behind that jab. It, it gives him something to think about, and you close that distance. Had yeah. had Ash done that, would he have been caught that way? I don't know. But walking in almost, you know, as a static target gave Linus 
I mean, he hit him with, was it three right hands in a row? And, you know, that was disappointing to see because Ashley's a friend of mine. Um, you know, he was a guy who was active at 81 kilos, which was Umar's weight as an amateur. But I don't think you guys met, did you? No, we yeah. didn't. But Ashley's a good guy. Hopefully he'll come back. But good win for Linus. And I think Linus moves onwards and upwards now. Probably looking at yeah. a Southern area title shot based on that performance. Yeah, and saying that as well, I think you got you still got to give credit to Linus as well because the way he kept his composure whilst being so close in and picked his shots was impressive. And I thought that was a very good knockout. I actually, I really liked the way that he stood off. He didn't start celebrating. He stood, he stood back. He was respectful of the situation. And then he, then once it was clarified, then he walked to the ring and then he took a bow. And I thought, that's classy yeah. for me. He's a good it's guy, man. Like, like, you know, he, 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 he showed up to keep us company in pinks. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah, he has, he, he has seen some reprobates in pinks. I know that much. At least two. With, well, 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 what about you? Don't, yeah, don't, don't exactly. throw me and Martin under the bus there. No, that's what I mean. Me and Martin, you saw in there. Two filthy like reprobates. Um, but yeah, okay, right. So moving on. We've got a few questions. Uh, Tony Chambers, thoughts on Frampton signing with Warren? Can Frank deliver a fight? For Carl at Windsor Park, there is also uh, Walker. He asks Frampton signing with Warren. Please discuss. Um, and the list goes on. People want to know about Frampton to Warren and what this is going to mean for the future of uh, Carl Frampton. Um, can I go first? You can, Umar. Let's hear the corporate. I think this is spectacular because Carl Frampton is the biggest draw in Irish boxing at the moment. Um, he brings in a massive crowd, a lot of class, fire of the year. Um, it's a great sign for Frank Warren, um, but it's also a good sign for Frampton because you'd imagine, you know, the BT war chest um, was open up to persuade him to come on board. But I can just see him doing really good um, with Frank Warren promotions, which would in line mean that the likes of me who are coming through underneath would benefit directly from it. And hopefully if that's on a massive card somewhere in the States and I get to be on an undercard, that's my take on it. It's all selfish. No, fully understand that. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely business-minded though. Um, how much must you hate Eddie Hearn to sign with Frank Warren when you're Carl Frampton? Um, well, Craig at Fight Talk asks, does... Warren signing with Frampton proved that money rules all, as he cannot possibly have been impressed at Box Nation's last, latest work. Look, um, so I've always said this. I think Hearn and Warren have their unique lanes, and I don't think there's much crossover between them. So Eddie Hearn, we said this last week, right? Eddie Hearn gets excited by the big events. Like you can see in, in his recent moves. What really excites Hearn is the Wembley shows, the O2 shows, you know, getting thousands of people He has people said in. that before. Yeah. All this stuff that he's got with the next gen and stuff, I don't think that excites him. I, it, it's something that's almost like a cost of doing business for him. He doesn't get excited by that. Whereas I think Warren sucks at that top tier. I don't think Warren is particularly good at delivering a night. He, he couldn't do 90,000 at Wembley, in my opinion. But Frank Warren from the ground up until just before that point is absolutely amazing. Like, look he's kept a belt on Billy Joe that Billy Joe hasn't deserved to keep due to his level of activity, but he's done that. So I respect Frank for fighting for his fighters, but when you're Carl Frampton and really the guys you want to fight in no particular order, are probably a Gary Russell Jr., a Leo Santa Cruz, a Lee Selby. Um, maybe you could whack in Lomachenko when there's a big 
payoff for Gravante Davis. They're the guys you want to be fighting as Frampton. And he already had Al Heyman in his pocket. He's got MTK backing him. So it's an interesting move, but he must clearly dislike Eddie Hearn because I think Hearn can make those fights more readily than Warren can. Well, if Hearn's really good at putting on the big shows and Frank's really good at putting on the small shows, I can see them working together in the future, right? Um, I I think another thing to um, factor in as well would be um, Frank Warren will probably have more time for um, Frampton than Eddie would Um, and maybe that could be something that might sway them as well well yeah or or just Warrington Ellen Road you know the fight dreams are made of yeah okay um Travelling Leeds fans and Belfast finests, what a crowd, what a fight. <laughs> Josh Warrington versus Frampton is something that Jamie Ingleby mentioned. It wouldn't surprise me. Look, look, we can map out a sequence that goes, Frampton has a fight against Warrington. He wins that. Then he fights a Gary, he fights a Gary Russell Jr. just to keep his name known in the States. Then he fights a Lee Selby for a belt. Then he goes to Santa Cruz, right? Let's sort this out. Maybe retires, maybe fights one of Davis or Lomachenko. There's there's a clear route Frampton can take to retire a wealthy man. And it doesn't take a rocket science to figure that out. I'm hoping he got assurances from the guys he signed with that they'll deliver that for him. Well, John Bailey asks, will Frank Warren be able to sell out a win... Actually, he calls him Frank O. Warren. But able to sell out a Windsor Park show. I think Frampton sells it out on his own, right? Yeah. Well, you'd have thought so, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay. Moving on, Ward retires. Uh, this is actually um, uh, t- Terry adding to the uh, to the the structure of the show, and he said Ward retires and the likely shakeup. The likely shakeup being the super uh, the light heavyweight division. Sorry, um, everyone knows I love Andre Ward. Um, love everything about Andre Ward. <laughs> I I absolutely do. And you know, people say I love David Hay. I, I put Ward above that. Um, oh my Andy, god! And get some lube and some tissue, please. <laughs> wow, this is, my, this is my day to take it. Um, look, I think I wrote. I said, of all the people who have made their debut since two thousand, I think Andre Ward is the best. Um, he's one of those rare boxers who did everything. Um, to you? Uh, well, well. <laughs> Only the free stuff. He wouldn't pay. He refused to pay. <laughs> he refused to pay. Yeah, so I, so I sent him over to Michael Barrymore's. <laughs> God, I get sued for that. <laughs> um, but but look, he is, and I know people say his style is boring. But if if you love the completeness of a boxing skill set, then Andre Ward's the guy you watch. He could do it on the inside. He could do it on the outside. He could deal with punches. He could deal with he could deal with anything put in front of him, and I think we saw that with the Kovalev, where everyone was like, uh, "We don't think Ward is that tough," and he's proved it time and time again. Kessler, Froch, Kovalev twice—they're four damn tough fights. And he's proved himself, and let's not forget the destruction of Chad Dawson, who was still a respected name. Um, he—I've said this before, and it's. it's it's incited some some sort of backlash, but I want to say this. If Andre Ward had been a white boxer, this guy would be a millionaire many times over. I think society struggled with the idea that you suddenly had a black boxer when no controversy stuck on him. 
There were no baby ma- no baby mothers. He was with his childhood sweetheart. They're committed. She follows him everywhere. She's loyal. She's respectful. She really knows her boxing too. Andre's a respectful yeah, guy. A Intelligent, articulate, understands boxing from the ground up. Andre Ward's a guy that if someone told you he was running for president, you'd be okay with that. And that's the one thing I really respect about him. He's he's a man that no matter what your background and culture is, you can respect who he is. You can respect how he conducts himself. He's he's a special boxer in that sense. Is but you he, think that held him back from making a larger impact? I think if he had been a knucklehead, like a Deontay Wilder type character, it would have fitted the narrative that boxing is used to. And so it threw him. If he had been out there just, you know, talking all that trash, you know, I... I just prior to the podcast, I was watching some of Ward's old fights. Um, his ability to solve problems is incredible. And secondly, the thing I really respect about him, you can't knock him off his rhythm. He sticks to what he's supposed to do, no matter what you try and do to him. Uh, Umar, do you have anything to add on that? Um, it was a bit... Because he didn't... Like, there was nothing to indicate that he was going to retire, so it was a bit like wait, uh, is this for real? Is he pranking us? I hope he comes back for one more. Then when you hear him talk about why he did retire, you know, he's talking about the body breaking down and um, all those sorts of things, and knowing that he can't get himself prepared in the same way that he would like to for fights, and he he wouldn't want to fight unless, you know, he he can give 100, and he always wanted to leave the sport rather than the sport retiring and all that stuff. You sort of got to just think, you know what, fair play. Yeah. Um, you, you you did what every fight would wish to do and um, wish you all the best in it. Um, and I do wish him all the best. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice, to be honest, it's it's nice to see someone being able to retire because, like, because they want to, I suppose. Um, yeah. Having, uh, you know, a decent career, um, you know, being able to walk away from the sport because, look, this isn't working for me anymore. That, you know... I'm, Maybe that's not the way he is when you say about his body breaking down. Would he still want to continue? Is the hunger still there, but the body's telling him no? Or has he just all in all had enough? So body of, and mind. So I, one of the things I can I, say. I think, I think it's a mixture of all. And um, as Tell would um, confirm, you know, he's a very calculated guy. He has a very um, good relationship with his wife and, you know, the guys at Rock Nation. And, you know, he's had a couple of big paydays recently. And I think... He's probably just invested his money really wisely and just thought, well, I don't even need to fight in to um, retire. I'm probably just happy to be with my family and, you know, go to church on Sundays and, you know, just be happy for the rest of my life. And that's what he's done. And, you know, fair play to the guy. you got to, give, you got to just take your hats off to him. One of the things that I remember, and I'm, I'm eternally grateful for having met Andre Ward in the flesh, but I remember we, we had a, a quiet conversation. So it was just him, me and his wife, Tiffany. And he said he was willing to retire after that Kovalev fight. Like, once he beat Kovalev, he was like, there's nothing left to do. I'm happy to retire. But it was the backlash against him where people said, ah, he ran. He couldn't, you know, he wasn't the guy. He spoiled it. He was wrestling. And he said he had to make that right. And I think after making it right against Kovalev, and then there was even more controversy. Were the shots legitimate or not? And then he was just like, I can't win. So I can understand why he retired yeah. because it's almost like the boxing world would just never give this man his due. And he might yeah. he might end up being like Mike McCallum, a boxer who's only appreciated like a generation or so after he's retired when people go back and look and go, wow, he really was good. 
Danny Watley asks, do you think Anthony Joshua should be looking over his shoulder at Daniel Dubois? Yes. And do you think that Triple D whoops AJ? Yep. Give him a six-rounder now, Dubois wins it. Umar? What, Triple G whoops AJ, did someone ask? Triple, uh, D. Triple D, sorry, Daniel Dubois. Oh, Triple D, all oh, right. Um, I don't know, I think it's early days yet, but um, you can definitely see the potential um, in Daniel Dubois for giving AJ a run for his money, maybe in about two or three years. But yeah. um, again, I still think it's early days. We need to see him against um, fighters of a decent enough caliber to be able to draw comparisons and simulate fights in our minds or heads. I, I see hope there for me. There's a hope there because uh, similar to what I, I think I mentioned on the podcast and Martin picked up on it after the Klitschko fight uh, and then the talk of him, who's going to fight next. I said, oh, I just have no interest in him fighting Pulev. Like, and, uh, and Martin said, see, the, you've just mentioned it there. Look at what Klitschko did all those years, selling out arenas against nobodies in order to maintain yeah. his titles. And yeah. and so when I look at Daniel Dubois, I think it might be the case that we have to watch, even if we do get in the middle of it, Wilder, and you know, let's say AJ even maybe even unifies the division, at least there's someone that, you know, that sitting in the future of boxing that could give him, at this point anyway, could give him a hard enough fight, something to look forward to. Um, because yeah, otherwise... Would be like that. Say again, sorry? I said I think the bar could be like that. Yeah, and, and, and that is what's quite nice about having him there. Just, I'm sure that other people will come along, but as of this moment, you're looking at it and going, okay, at least there's one person that in a few years might actually be there to challenge him. But let's look at Dubois. Um... He's, he's a young man, but one thing I love about him is he has his killer instinct and he really wants to hurt. He's the sort of guy that if you need a light, easy spa, don't invite Daniel Dubois. He doesn't know how to do that. You know, he's, yeah, he's, he's caught many people on the hop by basically saying, look, I'm here to take your head off. So he's already got the right mindset. I genuinely think we only need to ask two things right now. Can his chin take a solid shot? Yes, no. Can he do 12 rounds? Yes, no. Once we get yeses to both those questions, Jesus Christ, Joshua won't sleep again. <laughs> I'm being honest. I, I I don't because like if if Dubois had AJ hurt, unlike Klitschko, there'd be no backward steps. There'd be at least 15 solid right hands going in until the ref stopped the fight. He's just... Yeah. So who's a sensible fight for Dubois to take on now? It means uh, how many professional fights does he had now? Oh my God, I can't remember. Is it four or five? Uh, yeah, four or five. So, so who who does he take? Does he wait until he's ten and zero before he starts taking on challenging fights, or what's the best uh, way? For Domac and Lardy, that's one. Yeah, but wait, hold on. So first, you've got to think he's just won the Southern Era title. So if he's going to go the traditional route, you'd um, you'd expect him to fight for the English title in Nathan the next you know two maybe three fights at tops. Um, that's Nathan Gorman, um, but then. I don't know, do they take that fight that early? You know, the politics of it can come in. So maybe he might have to, you know, they might have to go separate ways for it. But I, I think you need to consider the politics of it. The main thing is, though, he's just won the Southern Area title. So the caliber fighters are certainly going to 
um, that he's boxing against are certainly going to go up. It won't be that South American who came in for the fight before last or AJ Carter. No offence to him, but, you know, everyone knew what was going to so, happen there. So we're looking at WBO European title shot then next. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> I would like to say no, but chances are probably. Mate, you're, you're lined up for one in your next fight, aren't you? Um, I, I begged for it, but thanks said no. <laughs> um, Danny Watley also asks, sounds like Tyson Fury's in a long-winded legal battle which could go on indefinitely. Can you give your thoughts on it, please? Now, we did touch on this briefly at the beginning. Um, do we have any? Do we have any indication as to how long that's going to go on for? No. He looked enormous behind Fury the other, uh, Huey, sorry, the other day, I, I, last night. I just looked at him. I thought, even if they say gave you the all clear tomorrow, you're a. I mean, I, I'm, I'm uneducated in terms of what, how long it would take him. But I, I, I guess I'm looking. I'm assuming it's anywhere between three and six months before he'd be ready to fight. Well, that- well, till he's ready to even think about training seriously, because you've got to shed the weight, but you want to do it in the right way. Um, look, the, the, this Fury thing's been an absolute God, tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it might all that that might be the Trojan horse. He might be that big, and then by the time he drops it all, all of a sudden he's like the white AJ. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he's lost his muffin top that he was used to have. Can you imagine it turned out that was just a suit he was wearing? <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Oh yeah. I, if anyone, I believe if anyone, it would be him. <laughs> I've been wearing one of those sumo suits that I didn't take back after a county fair <laughs> all this time. Um, Mick, Senor Tasty, asks, does Rio deserve... This is Rio Ferdinand. Does Rio deserve criticism for attempting a boxing career? I'm sure Malta or EBF would have had him in their top 10 by now. That's obviously... Well, but, well. Um, <laughs> it's Look, it's disrespectful. What do we think about it's it? It's just absolutely disrespectful. How dare this guy think he can look he was in bits when he retired you're a united fan andy the guy yeah. was in bits and pieces when he retired you're telling me a man with a back that's fucked is going to do a 12-week camp for any kind of fight what are they going to do like they did with flintoff find some pudding who throws himself on the floor and then rio can tell us he won something i'm tired of people using boxing as this vehicle for self-aggrandizement man for, for god's sake look You've won the Champions League, man. You're a hero to millions already. What more do you need? Like, he wouldn't go and play for Halifax Town, would he? Oh, I want to get over the the tragedy in my life. I want to go and play for Halifax Town. He wouldn't because he knows it's a shit standard. It's hard. Boxing's (laughs) easy. (laughs) He'd just turn up to rounds of applause. Do you know what? Just let, let him do four rounds with Daniel Dubois. And then go, Wow, I want to do this. (laughs) Umar, what are your thoughts on this? Um What does it how does it make you feel as a current boxer to watch someone as we kind of intimated there just walk into the sport and say, I'm gonna give this a go? Yeah. Um without trying to sound like an angel, but um I typically um just avoid passing judgment on people. Um, but so the two ways I look at this first of all I agree with Terry's um, uh, opinion and view on it but similarly at the same time I also believe that if a person wants to try something um, you know as long as they're harming nobody then they should be entitled to do that Um, I also believe that we live in a society you know as a capitalist society that rewards um, you know supply and demand or 
the demand with the supply that you give for it. So if he wants to do it and people are happy to tune in um, and pay the money and go to the venue to watch him, then there's some sort of a demand for it. And, you know, everyone's going to know what what it is that they're buying into. And it's similar to the Mayweather-McGregor thing. People knew what they were buying into. And so long as people are willing to pay for it, then he should be allowed to do it because, you know, it's a free world. Do what you want. And if he's going to, you know, if it's going to better his... um, I don't know, his public image. I can imagine someone in his PR team has probably suggested this. If it's going to um, make more money for him, you know, who's he hurting really? So just let him get on with what he's doing, is my opinion. But, but my immediate question was, why doesn't he just go and join Repton, get himself about at 91 kilo, you is know, he, job done? Will he definitely be a heavyweight? Cruiser. Oh, he'll be a cruiser. Uh, the reason why he wouldn't do that again, Terry, is because you know, typically you do things for money. The money drives everything. And fighting at 91 kilos for Repton or any other amateur boxing club is not going to make him the money to make it worth his time. So if he does this, it's the whole status thing, it's the promotion that comes with it, keeps his name relevant, um, allows him to plug his other businesses, um, the whole lot. I mean, if he turns up for, for fight night and it turns out to be a similar setup to Parker Fury, no one's in the venue and no one's buying in, then you say, well, go back and stay in your lane. But if he, you know, if he turns up to a packed house, star-studded um, around the around ringside, and people tune in to watch it, then clearly he's identified something that we haven't. I always feel that if yeah. people are willing to pay for it, then it's valuable. So, who would you match him against? I get some arsehole, some deadbeat, or someone out of the hospital or something. But that's what I <laughs> Like, literally specify. So, uh, Rio, we've got this guy for you. Has he come out of hospital? Well, no, but he, he might. He matches all the other criteria. Yeah, but you've said he hasn't come out of hospital. No, he hasn't. Right, so unless he comes out of hospital, I'm not interested. He'll be out before fight. He'll be out by fight week. <laughs> um, I, I'm inclined to agree I, with you, sorry, to be honest. Just to end it, I, I think so the, the main acid test would be, first event, how does it go? Who turns up and how is it received? Um, if he does a second event and people come out in the thousands again um, and tune in again in the thousands or millions, or probably not millions, but thousands, then he's clearly got a package that people want to buy into. Now, people saw all sorts of crap online and in shops that I think is a load of bullshit, but I can't go and say take that off the shelves because I don't agree with it. If someone's willing to pay for it and you're making profit from it, then that's the society we live in. You're allowed to do it. But also we have regulation for a reason, right? And hopefully the British Boxing Board of Control will acknowledge that and go, this might not be the right thing for you to do. Now, if the most... The only thing they're going to acknowledge is the 4% they make of his fight post, sorry. Which is true, but... And, and it, makes them, it makes a mockery of the idea of regulation. And, you know, at a time when boxing is literally fighting for credibility, you know, having these guys show up and go, I'm just going to do it because I fancy it. I, I, I just think that there's plenty of worse worse um, people that have taken to the ring that have been we don't know uh, that, medically questionable. or No, a what? F- from Rio's medical history? No, we don't. That's quite yeah. correct. But um, in as much as, well, we ha- there's a pretty low bar, is what I'm saying, to, in order for him to be, to be dismissed. I have an issue with that as well, as you yeah, well I know. You do. Yeah, I, yeah. I have a fundamental issue with that. I've always said this. In this country, there should only be two ways you can box. You should either have an amateur license or a professional license. And to have a professional license, you should have at least 30 or 40 amateur bouts. We should really start to strict, be stricter. But, on but 
if you say that, then you're saying the likes of O'Hara Davis um, shouldn't be a pro. Anthony Yard, Lawrence Ricoli, these people all had less than 30. Um, I'm about to, the name, the list goes on. There's no, so many other people. No, but, 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 okay, so let's turn it around and say, had that rule been in place, they'd have all done the 30 bouts. Fair enough. And, and, and we wouldn't have the situation we have in the amateurs now where guys are talking about, I can only fight once every three months. I need, I need a 10 week camp to get ready for the ABAs <laughs> and that sort of nonsense. You know, because I'm still old school. I remember at the lodge, you had to write down your weight every training session. So yeah. what it meant was you could fight at two or three days notice. So yeah. there are guys who are racking up 15, 20 bouts a season. So you imagine that's a year and a half of boxing and you're, you're good enough to go pro. So, so Yeah, true. I think, I th but we do need to address that issue because where there's no quality control, there's no confidence in your customers. See, I, I see it as potentially something to, as an advert for boxing if rio brings any new fans to the sport and they watch him get laid out by somebody whatever but if he's part of a bigger setup like if someone is wily enough to put him on a card which features better and um, higher profile boxers a better standard of boxing you never know it might bring fans to the sport so what did yeah, what did Flintos fight do for the sport? Like, I don't see the McGuigans making no, a, a truckload of money. I've, uh, that, that's a that that's a fair point. However, I would argue that um, the Flintoff's profile was wasn't as large as Rio's, just simply because of the there, sport. there was there was that, and also Flintoff's was just basically based around a TV documentary. This uh, one is so as well. Everything was rushed. No, um, yeah, but it's it's I don't know. I haven't it feels it different. It, it feels yeah. If if it feels like he's trying to embark on a new career, yeah. whereas Flintoff was just on a one time. I'm gonna try this and see how it goes, sort of thing. Well, Rio will be what 39 by the time he's ready to fight. 39 years old. Yeah, yeah George, same age George as Mayweather. He George can be Ford, great. George Foreman came back later than that. But George Foreman. <laughs> 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 you should have seen the incredulence on Terry's face. He was so annoyed by that comment. <laughs> Listen, you know Foreman's above any kind of question. For, for, Foreman exists on a plane all of his oh, own. Oh, that was so satisfying. Um, okay, John Bailey says, Eddie has supposedly said that the money for Bellew in the World Boxing Super Series would have been a big drop. He's number one cruiser and he makes less money unless he's KO'd in the first fight. Uh, I guess that's basically talking about, do you believe that it would be less money? But then he's got... Oh, but then we also have another question, which, <laughs> does Bellew not get enough credit for being a genius? He goes on to say, it looks an inspired move up to avoid Usyk and Dortikos. Well, basically, yeah. <laughs> two chicken emojis. I'm no no no. I, I look. I don't I don't I don't like Bellew as a boxer, but I like Bellew as a man. And the main reason I like Bellew is that he's taken a career that isn't really that great and has talked himself into some kind of international relevance. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know what Jay Z said yeah. it best: you can't knock the hustle. And if it means that he feeds his wife and kids and he's financially secure, I'm not going to knock it. But when he gets hold of a fully fit David Hay, that just might be the end of the story. So we're hearing that that's been signed off for... Um, I don't think it's signed. I think it's agreed, but everyone just needs oh, to put pen right. to paper. Right, okay. And yeah. that's going to be but December. For, for what I'm hearing, Bell is basically getting the same money as he did last time. But wait, quickly. 
Do, can any of you confirm what the prize money is for winning the WBS? No, because they talk about the budget being 50 million, but I imagine that's covering the purses throughout. So I'd imagine right. the winner might get like a 5 million or something if you just sort of break the numbers down that way. Somewhere right. between 3 okay. and 5 million. Probably less for the cruiserweights, actually. All right, cool. Then that would make sense. Because I thought it was a lot more than that. And I was thinking, well, how much do you think you're going to make off the hay fight? But if it's only about 3 or 5 million, then... Yeah, it's, it's not great numbers because I think they accept it. There's only really a few... There's only a few truly marketable fights in this. And I think that's the mistake these guys made. I would have, yeah. I would, I would, I would have parceled up the quarterfinals together. So have, you know... Maybe just having like a couple of cruiserweight fights, a couple of super mid fights, and just have it that way, and then charge more for less fights. Um, Eddie Hearn going to the US. What what's behind this story? Hubris, man. Let's be brutally honest. It's hubris, isn't it? You you, you know you you're there and you think you've got the UK market so sewn up because Warren hasn't stepped up. Um, Hayes not big enough to be a threat. MTK kind of do what they want. Um, so you can look at America because his UK operation kind of takes care of itself. You know, we're going to see AJ. At some point, we're going to see Brooke. We're going to see O'Hara Davis. Then we're going to see the next gen lot. Like there's almost a, a regular cadence to that with some special guest appearances. So Hearn probably has 12 months where he can try and crack the US market. Would you sign Danny Jacobs as your first fighter? Probably not because I still think Danny Jacobs is susceptible to a guy that can but really yeah. punch. He has. Yeah, no, agreed. But I don't think that was the best move. Um, All right. Who would you have signed? Would you, would you have signed a Jarrell Miller? Maybe he's got Jarrell Miller signed up, but you'd sign someone like that, someone who can sell. And I don't think Danny Jacobs can. To this day, the funniest thing Danny Jacobs has done is still that Canelo video that's on Instagram. That's oh. the funniest thing. <laughs> okay, um... So, do you think this could be a detriment to the UK boxing scene? No, not not if you can get some uh, crossover fights. I think that would be good. So, if you go almost have like I, a, I think you will do. I think you will have a lot of crossover fights. Can you imagine a round the clock card? So you literally have an O2 show that finishes at midnight or half eleven, and you go straight into a US show. You know, so so the, the, all those look. If Hearn Hearn can do it, but I'm trying to think of who would you sign because the American markets depressed i think the only thing hearn can go for is what i call event arbitrage where he gambles that he can sell out venues better than the u.s promoters can but do you really think de la hoya aram Heyman are going to sit there and let this new guy come in and take money off their plate i find that hard to believe uh well they can't do anything once they play sweet caroline then that's it he's done it <laughs> <laughs> Uh, unstoppable and you can get Neil Diamond to do it live in the States right <laughs> Neil, well, there, there you go <laughs> British Boxing Blog um, I hope I haven't covered this one already having drawn my white collar debut that I clearly should have won and if you take out multiple titles <laughs> and general ability am I equal to Triple G well the way he's declining you will be next year <laughs> I take it uh, if there is a rematch, you're gambling on a Canelo win then? Yeah, Canelo win comfortably. I, I thought Canelo won, to be fair. Yeah, what did you think to Umar? What did you think to the fight in total, all in all? Just a quick recap, another uh, opinion. Uh, yeah, so again, going by the judging criteria that I was mentioning earlier, um, Canelo was showing, um, you know, effect, he had effective defence, 
He picks when and where the fight happened, ring general shit. He landed more eye-catching shots. Um, Golovkin was coming forward, but it wasn't effective. Um, even when he was throwing a lot of combinations, most of them were, uh, most of the punches weren't landing. Um, all in all, though, it was still a close fight, and I scored it um, seven rounds to five in favor of Canelo. Um, so when people are screaming at robbery, I, I, I don't understand what this um, screaming about. Because equally, I could have been screaming at robbery because I thought Canelo won. Um, I think people just need to come off the high horse and believe that their opinion is gospel. Agreed. 100% agree with that. Um, you know, it, it's one of the rare things in life, isn't it? Where we assume we just know. It, it, it's like when Terry's people... really good at that as well. Terry, if Terry's, Terry's, <laughs> <laughs> Terry will say, look, I am a humble man and you are, your, your, your opinion is as valid as mine. <laughs> so, long as you, so long as it's the same as mine. <laughs> exactly. You know, that, that, that's exactly how it needs to be, man. The easiest way to live in this world is just agree with me. <laughs> um, British Boxing Blog also asks, and you may have something to uh, add here, Umar. Um, apart from Anthony Yard, who is the best UK active boxer? Um, Umar Sadiq. Agreed, yeah. <laughs> Umar Sadiq. That's a synced answer. And, if I, if, and if, if, I, if I didn't say that, then everyone who followed me should unfollow me. So, <laughs> Look, man, Frosh retired because he heard Umar might turn pro one day. He just said, you know what? I don't know when it's going to happen. I'm retiring. Yeah. Uh, but put it this way. It's no coincidence that Andre Ward retired in the same month I made my professional date. No, it's a, a fair point, mate. Yeah, it's a fair point. <laughs> Um, Craig, uh, oh, sorry, no, go on. So oh, actually, yeah, I suppose you better ask. I mean, uh, that is one. Let's give a three. <laughs> three best active UK fighters. Um, it's actually hard at the minute. Um, you're going to have to put AJ up there. Um, simply because you look, he's a world champion. You look around the world and the, the, the only person that we can think of mentioning that can potentially beat him is not even an active fighter. Um, so... I'd start with AJ. I take uh, it by that you wouldn't give uh, Wilder a chance then. Um, I would, but the best chance would be given to Tyson Fury. I mean, the Wilder thing would still be split. I think I, I'd, I'd say AJ would be a favourite going into that fight. Wilder's only hope would be he lands, you know, a massive chocolate brownie. Um, but otherwise, I mean, no one's going to favour rather to outbox AJ or set the pace of the fight with all the rest of it. It would just be if he lands that right hand, he knocks him out. But then equally, he can get knocked out himself. Um, I, I don't know. I think after that, I, I, I struggle quite a bit because I think you get to a certain level, most fighters are kind of on par with one another. And then there's always that. We always have a case in the UK where we think this fight is exceptional. And then they box someone that's a bit more dynamic and they were like, oh, actually, we're a bit wrong. So I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a hard question. I can only just say, um, I'm not saying AJ is the best active UK fighter, but I'll just put him right up there. Um, I'd say, uh, I don't know. I don't want to go on record start calling names. I need to think about it. Um, so Terry, go first and I'll think what's just speaking. Yeah, Terry's not afraid. Paul Smith Jr., yeah. Martin Murray, Josh Warrington. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, can I add Katie Taylor to that fish? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, Craig, a fight talk, asks Is John Fury's rant the most intense, detailed beef that IFL have ever aired? Now, there's no context for this for me. I have no I, idea. I haven't heard it. If it's the one where him and Tyson were being filmed and Tyson was telling his dad to get his cock out, 
Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, I couldn't, it was cringeworthy. So I stopped listening after a while. Mm, no, okay. So I, I have, I've, I've called, I've read the question out, but unfortunately, there's no answer here. There is no answer. Sorry, Craig. Um, we are on to any other business, gentlemen. Is there anything else we want to add? Um, no, no, let, let, let's kind of just let's let's just turn the guns on Uma now. Like you know, just just for the audience to set some context. Like you know, Uma's path to becoming a pro has been it's been lengthy. But one thing I really respect about his journey to this point is he didn't compromise on his expectations and his standards. So we've spoken regularly over the last twelve months or so about this journey and I genuinely respect his his thing of he knew where he wanted to sign he knew what his platform was once he secured that he's been equally bullish in what he'd like to achieve in you know in the time that he boxes and it's refreshing to have someone come out and say and he said on the um on Bunce's boxing hour so I can repeat this where he just said you know, I think I can beat the lot of them. So what, why shouldn't, why should I be afraid to fight them? And that's a real fighting mentality. So, you know, that's why, that's one of the reasons we've got him on because you want to have people on this podcast who combine all the different elements of boxing. So the technical side, the in-ring stuff, but also someone who's good outside the ring, who's good in front of a microphone as well. So no, it was just more, you know, if you just want to share your journey, Uma. So I know was it was it June twenty sixteen you had your last amateur fight? And then yeah. and then just sharing sharing that path from, from June twenty sixteen to September twenty seventeen. Um it was just um so June twenty sixteen was um the last opportunity no, it wasn't actually unless you're on the W W um S B. But it was the last opportunity representing the nation to qualify for the Rio Olympics. And um I was in a Nigerian team for the African Olympic qualifiers in March 2016. Um, I lost out on a fight that... Um, so this was the theme of my amateur career, was losing fights that um, everyone else believed I won. Um, but I've addressed a few things with that, that, um, that should stop it happening in the pro. So it's just little things like the way um, I block shots or react to shots that makes, sometimes makes them look like they landed or did cause more damage than they did um, but anyway so long story short um there was that in march then um th- there was a political crisis in nigeria where um in, the government weren't letting enough any money so the national team couldn't go to the world olympic qualifiers in june um i was an accountant at the time and i took time off of work to um unpaid time off of work to you know get myself out there go present a nation you know on my own no, it wasn't quite my own. I was with um, I, I took one of my teammates with me actually. So um, two of us went out there, and um, literally did everything from sourcing the visas to booking the flights, sorting out the accommodation, registering once once we got to Azerbaijan, which is where it was. Um, you know, making sure our weight was right, finding out where where the fights were going to be, what time, um, getting coaches to be in our corners. There was so much that went into it, and the only way I was able to do it was um, just out of pure hunger. And um, this desire to go to um, Olympics, and um, again in that I lost the fight that I, I thought I won, but you know, so it wasn't meant to be. And I just took it as maybe I just, you know, the, that wasn't the path that was made for me. So um, I was ready to go pro, but in going pro because I'd boxed at such a high level in the amateurs, um, and with the experience of the people I sparred with, I knew what level I was at, and I knew that for a fact I had the 
makings of being a world champion. But not just being a world champion, but also, you know, maximising what I do in boxing and the way I do it so that um, my family have something to show for my hard work and dedication and sacrifice. So um, I embarked on this path to go professional, um, like Terry mentioned earlier, under my own terms, um, which meant it took me a lot longer than um, I wanted to, but I I wasn't going to budge. Um, eventually, I got the right deal that I needed, left work, went into camp, focused on um, making my debut on the world title on the card. And I did that, um, you know, just last week. And um, the feed, the general feedback was that it was one of the better um, boxing debuts that most people there who are all boxing people have seen in um, a very long time because I was measured, I was composed, um, I, w- I wasn't erratic or nervous and uh, basically, I looked like a, I looked at someone that had a fair bit of experience already, but I think because it's taken me over a year to turn over, I've had time to um, make that transition from amateur to pro, and um, because I work so honestly and um, you know relentlessly, that um, I was able to go in there and be comfortable and essentially just be in my element. Like I said at the start of this um, pod, it was just another fight. It was just being in a ring with an opponent. And, um, yeah, so th- that's been a journey so far. I've spoken to everybody. I've had to learn a lot about the boxing. Um, I've had to learn... Sorry, go on. No, I'm just going to ask, because at the beginning of the pod, you said um, that, if anything, it's inspired you to really sort of double down. This is what you want after that fight. But then you also said it was just another fight. So can I ask you what, what it was about that fight that made you go, this is... I realise you've gone through a lot um, at this point, yeah. but like, what, what gave you that sort of spur? Right, so it was just another fight in terms of leading up to it. I was thinking, you know, smaller gloves, big venue, lights, all the pressure, cameras. How am I going to deal with it? How, um, you know, how, am I going to block the shots with the smaller gloves? Or, you know, when I get hit, is it going to, um, is it is it going to hurt more than what I'm used to getting hit? Or, you know, am I, am I going to hurt my hand when I hit this guy? But I got in there and looked at him, and literally everything that was outside of the ring didn't matter no I couldn't even see my coach it was just me and this person and that when I say it was just another fight it was more that it was just I'm in a ring it's myself and the opponent and nothing else matters um and then in terms of um making me want it more it's just it, it's it's a buzz it, it, it's a bit like skydiving or you know um free jumping or something where you get an adrenaline rush or something that you enjoy and all it was also just nice to see um things that I've been working on in the gym um, come to light, so I was able to execute those things, and it, it just gives you that much more confidence. So there's a bit of positive reinforcement where I'm thinking, um, after that fight, do you know what? I'm, I, I definitely not that I didn't believe before, but it's just again positive reinforcement and saying, Yeah, I was right, I can actually do this, let's get on with it, and I just want to get to the top as soon as possible. So, one of the things I think people always find interesting is. You know, how you went about, you know, placing yourself with the trainer, getting yourself in camp. Because I know you're you're training out of cool box in East London mm-hmm. and you know, you're there with Mr. Sauce himself and also <laughs> Penny boys. <laughs> um and we, for people who don't know Lawrence Ocoli. And also, you know, you're a couple of young hungry animals who are on their way up, and one of those is Dan Aziz as well. So you know, Brian O'Shaughnessy is seemingly building a hell of a stable out of East London. So what was your process in choosing a pro trainer? Um, it was just, um, so first of all, I've, I've had known Brian for years. He's done my corner as an amateur before as well. Um, and I've done some work with him in the old TKL gym in Chinatown. 
um, which is where Johnny Eames and you know his his mob were based at for years. Um, but so the first thing was uh, I needed a trainer whose boxing philosophy I trusted, a trainer who wasn't just going to give me the textbook stuff, and and a trainer who was able to identify things in a boxing fight that I couldn't see because I, um, without being so braggadocious, I, I think I've got good boxing IQ. So um, when a lot of trainers speak to me, I'm, I think, well, no, you're misunderstanding that. So I've always been quite um, flat. I've always been impressed by trainers who can pick things out that I haven't seen um, to teach me. So I needed that to respect a trainer. And um, he, he was one of the few trainers who were able to do that. Um, I liked his approach to work and just how he can change the dynamics of a fight by just simple instructions um, in one or two sentences. So um, I gave him a try. He was also the trainer who trained me leading up to Olympic qualifiers. And um, I was happy with the way that we worked. We clicked well. So if it's, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Um, in saying that, it doesn't mean that I didn't you know, look around and um, consider what, what other options there may be. But I just felt like this was the right fit for me. Um, it was the right place to be, and together we're going to do great things. It, it reminds <laughs> what you said. Then reminds me of all those, you know, the, all those because I didn't realise just how many people were qualified in the sort of uh, the, the the deeper mental like boxing mentality and all the boxing skills you see them at the side of the ring and they're screaming when you know when there's a fight going on hit him hit him that, <laughs> those really impressive instructions that are you know are gonna sway a fight for you so <laughs> it just reminds me of those blokes hit him just just fucking hit him <laughs> no but, but but it's important because i think one of the things people should take from this and i think Umar has expressed it brilliantly is you're you're a great advert for sticking with the guys who helped you out in the amateurs because I think that's probably where you see people in their truest form because no one's doing it for money and there's genuine love and you know appreciation and there's real emotion involved in what happens in that process so I think you know the process you've outlined regarding you know picking Brian and moving to Coolbox is just a reminder for a lot of these young guys who are looking for the next big thing actually trust what got you to the point you're at now and you probably you know, I mean you're probably most of the way there like look at Warden and Virgil Hunter I always find it yeah. strange that they call Virgil Hunter Andre Ward's godfather then they say he's only known him since he was nine years old I'm like well when were you godfather from from nine years old hmm? what kind of christening is that maybe a belated one yeah <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's when he decided, yeah, that's what he wanted to go for. <laughs> that was just very bizarre. Um, no, no, but, but, but it, it is. And <laughs> Related one. <laughs> so what's it like in the gym there, though? Like, what, what, What's the energy like? Because I think that's probably a gym I'd class as on the way up. So it's not one of the established camps like an Adam Booth camp. It's definitely on the way up. So what's it like in there? Um, it's definitely on the way up. Um, it feels that way. Um, we feel like you know daily we're getting better. I know you mentioned Lawrence and Dan, but we actually have a few other fighters in there, and we regularly train with people who are not even professional fighters themselves. So um, it's a family feel. Everyone gets on. Everyone encourages each other. Whenever we get in the gym, everyone's seen as an equal. So we have no egos, and that's always nice. Um, and you know we've got a guy called Mahib Fazuldin who's moved down from Sheffield. He's boxing on the seventh of October. Um, super Bantam, I think his weight is, and you know he's an exceptional talent. Um, you know we have a fair few people, and then yeah, it's just a family feel. We all we all work hard, we all drive each other, 
Um, I, I'm known to be the person in the gym who talks the most trash, and um, <laughs> I'm the snitch of the gym. If you ever slept, I would, I would snitch, and I'll make you feel shit about it. But it's all that, just you know, it's, it's good fun. Um, it's a good vibe. We support each other really well, and um, I, I, I think, like you said, we feel like we're growing, and there should, there'll be good things to come from that gym. I believe. Yeah, it's a great gym. Um, I was up there before. I mean, I took that that shot of Dan Aziz that, that that tapped up my broken ribs. So I had to feel that again, <laughs> which was somewhat embarrassing. I was like, yeah, yeah, I got this. That was the first shot I took. And I was like, oh, man, not again. Yeah, imagine having to take that week in, week out. <laughs> Mate, I don't, I don't envy you. And, and, and a lot of people won't understand this for a few months. But when you, Dan Aziz, it, it, it's not human. That's how I describe it. It just, it, it defies all laws of physics. He, he basically looks like he's just um, throwing a throwaway shot, but when that throwaway shot hits you, it hurts. Yeah, he, he, you go backwards quickly, <laughs> quicker yeah. than Huey Fury. <laughs> um, so now let, let's look to the future now. Um, you got the first one out of the way. Um, yeah. How soon are you going to start saying to Frank, you know, like like Daniel Dubois, I need all of the belts. Um, I actually said, well, I didn't even say that, but when I had the first meeting with Frank, he said, I get the vibe from you, you're going to want to fight for a while in your full fight, but you're going to have to take your time. Um, and that was about me mentioning it. But ever since, um, I, I've been drumming the, you know, I've been beating the drum of, I want at least a title before next summer. So in my first year as a pro, I want a title of some sort, whether it's Southern Area English, um, I don't really care, I just want a title. Um, because I think then that make, that keeps me relevant. It puts me in some sort of ranking that means I, I have to stay active because I want to. And, um, you know, like I mentioned in the Fox Nation interview, I would like to be a world champion in three years. Um, ideally unified. It sounds very ambitious, but, um, you know, some people, most people fail in life because they aim too low and hit. And uh, I'm not one of those. That was a quote from Liz Brown. But, um, yeah, so I, I don't see the point in wasting time. I like what Joe Joyce is doing with David Hay, where, you know, he's going straight up to what level he thinks he's already at. Um, if it was up to me, I wouldn't have boxed the opponent that I boxed in September. But, you know, I've got to go through the process. But I think I'm at least English level already, at the very least. So the sooner they can get me onto that and onto that level fighting for those fights, then the happier I'll be. I have a question. Um, what's the biggest jump you can make? in terms of titles, in terms of like... So presumably, the the guys heading towards a Southern Area title or the guys heading towards an English title, they're all on a different circuit or trajectories, obviously. But could you go from a Southern Area title to, I don't know, a British title or a world title? I, I think it all comes down to where you're ranked. So you can't challenge for a title unless you're in the top 15 of the ranking for it, I believe. Right. Terry, correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, look, Frank Buglioni's done what the hell he wanted, right? Never been, never been ranked for any of the titles he's fought for. Just no, well, if, if your promoter bangs the drum hard enough, normally the shot will come your way. There you go. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll like to get, um, you know, five, maybe six learning fights out of the way. And I, I mean, learning fights, not where I'm going in and, you know, someone's got their hands up and I'm expected to beat them up for a few rounds. I, I want someone who's going to come in with a bit of ambition. I'm expected to beat them, but also learn certain things in the process. Um, and once I've learned what I think, what I feel, what my team feel that I would need to learn, um, I'm happy to step in and um, fight for titles. Um, you know, I, I'm approaching this with a mindset of I'm better than everyone. I believe I retire undefeated, but I'm also not afraid to um, take a chance. So if there's a fight that I believe I'd win, even though um, most other people may think I wouldn't, if I think I'd win it, I'd go for it and I'll push for it. Um. And then one of the things I want to say, there are a lot of super middleweights in London. 
you don't have to mention any names if you don't want to but just your general view on that um you know if you if you want you know, is it a i'm going to clean up london or is it just you know i'm, I'm going to take a couple off and then move on move up on i literally just want the fastest route to world titles so if that means jumping um over certain titles domestically then i'm happy to do that i just want i just want to be on the world stage um and a world you know on the world level as soon as possible so um, you wouldn't do anything like um try to win the the is it english title outright Oh no, it's a long British title. Well, long right. Would that would would that interest you at all or not? Um, you guys have discussed this in the pod several times, and I'm in agreement with um. I think what Terry says, um, with no disrespect to it, like, what does it mean really? You know, it's the British title. Yeah, great. If I won it, you know, to say that I've been a British champion, great. But winning it outright, I don't really understand what that does for me in terms of um. You know, like, let's take Bradley Skeet for example. He stayed behind to win the British title outright, but I, I don't see what it's done for him commercially or um, in terms of status within the boxing world. Um, I think it's just one of those personal um, desires that people have. Yes, yeah, uh, it know. strikes me as it, it either appeals to those with limited ambition or limited belief in their own potential. It's an anachronism, and we've discussed this before about actually look at the people historically who hold these belts. They never really go on to do anything at world level because for them, that Lonsdale belt is as high as they can ever expect to go. And I respect that. But if you have any ambition to take over the world, you don't lark around having three title defences against nobody's for god's sake and, and i know i can get away with that today because martin's not yeah because that is true if, yeah. if, he, if he was here you know that would be the start It'll of a rant it. <laughs> yeah and I, yeah and you know i don't say that to not bradley ski i mean i'm not i'm not in a position to um comment on why he wanted to win it outright or why anyone else would want to win it outright i just don't see the benefits of it so I, 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 it's not a goal of mine i don't see okay. top american fighters that you know Terence Crawford um, going on about how he wants to win the NADF North American Boxing um, title for um, outright before moving on. Like what, from this side of the river, um, what, what does that even mean to me? It means nothing. All I want to see is, are you fighting for a world title and how long are you keeping it for and how many do you have? Everything else is relatively irrelevant. It's just a stepping stone in my opinion. Okay. A couple of light-hearted ones for you now. Number one, tell us the truth. What sauce does Lawrence Okoli really use? <laughs> um, he strikes me as a garlic mayonnaise sort of guy. You know, just a little bit I, of a I'm, kick. I'm trying to think. I, do you know, I, I don't even know, you know. I still actually don't know. I see him eat a lot, but I never take notice of whatever he's putting on. <laughs> is that because he's eating so fast? Basically, it was just like knocking it out in one go, one round. <laughs> because someone made someone made up a bottle and it was like a coli sauce. I, I don't know what was in the bottle, actually, but there was a label that just said a coli sauce. I thought that was a great marketing. It'd be absolutely hilarious. Yeah, um, that's funny. Second one. Will Andy Ayling ever pay me my money? <laughs> um, I can ask him for you, but I'll, that would have to be that I'm on a commission. <laughs> you half your money back yeah yeah you, you can get 20 percent <laughs> um dm me after we can negotiate properly. <laughs> hey terry Don't i've got your money <laughs> I'll, i will give you back 10p in the pound <laughs> and also we'd have to discuss the payment terms you know 
uh, how, how would you take installments and over what type of period you know <laughs> no 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 for andy i'm more than flexible you know we we well actually the deal was actually the money plus two roster picks no the thing is he might pay me all the money in full but the way the money he gets to you is what i'm talking about i am an ex-accountant so you know I'd, I'd want to make maximize <laughs> <laughs> every penny the coach. <laughs> I'll deliver it to you at forty-five p a mile. <laughs> um, now listen, um, Uma man, just conscious of time, but thank you for joining. Thank you for getting involved, man. We wanted to get you on for a while, and it's good that the public, you know, get to get to. You know what I mean, see what's beyond the the yellow, the green and white trunks, which were good outfit for a debut, by the way. Thank you very much. Shout but, out Nigerian Repton. Yeah, but remember, man, when it comes to long socks, I'm the master, as Andy will tell you, man. Like, people need to come to me for tips on, you know, <laughs> what, what socks go over the knee and just the little tricks to make sure they don't roll down below the knee because that can happen sometimes. Nah, those socks fit tight. Those socks are actually from um, my sponsor called X-Bionic. Um, they make... Um, the best in wearable technology for fitness and um yeah those socks i've got no chance of falling down believe me shout out to x bionics feel free to sponsor us feel free to send us some goods <laughs> to test out more than happy to review fairly and impartially uh, i thought your promotional video was awesome by the way Umar. thank you very much that's thank a, you very much it's quality uh, it really is and and yeah. that, and that's what you set yourself up for, right? That you wanted to be the guy that that raised the bar and said to anyone making their debut, "Look, you've got no excuses now." Exactly. Um, my, my whole approach is just on being original and um, being myself. Most importantly, so um, I, I never look at um, something and think, "Oh, how is it done?" and "How has someone done it before?" I look at something and think, "What are we doing?" what are we trying to get out of it and then i'll go back and think of how i want to execute it so i'm spinning myself um and it's good to see that you know the things i'm doing are being well received um so your twitter handle is at top box there's only one i've just followed you myself i don't know why how i wasn't before but there you go um (laughs) so yeah get on that um so uh, same for Instagram as well. Follow that. Oh, I got Instagram accounts as well. Yeah, Instagram as well. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, and also on Facebook, Umar Top Boxer Sadiq. Nice. Okay, do we have any other points to raise? No, not this week, man. This feels like a lengthy one. So. Uh, Umar, thank you it so much one. for spending so much time with us. Yeah, we appreciate that. that. I mean, that's incredible. I, I really thought this was going to be a shorter pod, but clearly, clearly no. <laughs> that's all right. Thanks for having me on. I just hope that people were um, happy enough to bear with it and listen to the end. Well, I mean, we, we might just be speaking to ourselves at this point now. Maybe no one ever listens this far in. No, no, listen, listen. <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm notorious for dropping bombs at the end, so people go, he might say anything. So you got to listen till the end. Or sing. I mean, they wouldn't want <laughs> okay. Okay. stop you from singing so yeah. i guess that brings us to the end of the podcast obviously follow mr umar sadiq at top boxer sadiq get in touch with us for future pods with a hashtag new abq uh, at the seven wolves at new age boxing uk for martin and at new age podfather if some some strange hour of the day I do check Twitter and actually decide to respond the to ma- you. The man who really wants to tweet more but is just really conscious that no one will like or retweet his stuff. <laughs> and I I do I actually to be fair, I was I was sort of live tweeting yesterday during the Parker Fury fight and it uh, it was it was it was 
cool. But I sometimes I go on there and I've got like twenty notifications, and it's all from like interchanges between you guy, uh, you and Martin. And I think to myself, how do they constantly on Twitter like this? If I if I do, mate, mate I get so savaged on Twitter, like. Yeah, by, by, by these, good reason, Mike. Nah, not really. These mealy mouth fucking basement dwellers, man. They all just <laughs> want to dig me out for no reason, just because I speak the truth. <laughs> Feel free to send Terry uh, abuse just for that that comment okay. alone. Um, right, I guess we will we will top uh, cut it off there. Thank you very much once again for listening. Thank you, Mister Umarsadik, for all your time, and we will see you next week. I'm <laughs> gonna